You're listening to Podcast with Yoshi Obayashi. Hey, uh, welcome to the new episode. And Dan, um, wh- this is Sherman Oaks, or where, where are Last, we? Yeah, it's Sherman Oaks, named after yeah, yeah, Sherman Oaks, named after the famed actor Sherman Helmsley, I think. Just, yeah. Oh, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. You owned a lot of property here. You, you guys gonna love this podcast. Uh, I'm here with Dan Madigan, and uh, I, I don't know how to describe you. I mean, you do so many different things so well. You, you're a student of wrestling, and you're Former wrestlers, right? Yeah, I used to grapple. Them and uh, you, you wrote um, "See No Evil" and yep. uh, "Traffic Movie." And it's, what, what, what a small world! Uh, Gregory Dark, who used to be director for Evil Angel, made that movie. Yeah, and, he did. Um, it's funny because I knew Gregory before. I knew Gregory before um, this movie was made. I'd met him years before. He was a fan of one of my my first script, so I knew Gregory. I had a history with Gregory going into this movie. Um, he's an interesting cat. Like yeah, that. and he did several other major music video, yeah, Britney oh, Spears yeah. and things like that. Later on, when people find out, they made a big stink out of yeah. it. But um, no, um, he's a smart guy. I mean, he's his parents are anthropologists, and he's a very. When I first met him, I was um, I was across from my favorite place in the world, was the New Beverly Theater. I was uh, waiting to meet him at some coffee shop, and I was reading, I think, a Herman Hesse novel. He walks up, he goes, "You have to be damn out again," and we talked. Uh, well, how did he know? How did he know you? Um, he had read my first script, White Knuckle Night, and that was the script that got me into ICM, and people really liked it. And that, a lot of people talked about getting it made. It was a, yeah, you know, one of these things when the script went around, people loved it. But I get a lot of meetings out of it. But he liked the script. We started talking, and then the first time we never talked about porn. We always we talked about Busby Berkeley musicals that we're both fans of. Martial arts, yeah. German existential. I mean, so it's just we had these really obscure th- things we found in common, and then he w- we w- we sort of kept in touch. And then years later, when I was working in pro wrestling, and plus I was doing the script, and the script of Cena Evil came to him. He was, oh, I know Dan, and I want to do it. And he loved the script. He wanted to do it. So that's yeah. how it came, it came about, you know. And I know Gregory Dark did porn, but even his movies are. Not traditional porn, like I don't want to say artistic, but they're really interesting, you know. Yeah, because Gregory's not, you know, I don't know a lot of um, porn directors. I, I have friends who work in the business, but I mean, to be honest, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a porn fan. I'm not just, yeah, uh, it's not, you know, um, but his approach to things, uh, no matter what it was, whether it a horror movie or a porn film, he's always a couple of degrees to the left, which is nice and. He he was when he was talking about making Cena Evil. He said he wanted to get these old fashioned cameras and crank them a certain way and yeah. things. And so you know, I know his approach to horror films that must mirror his approach to porn movies because why shoot the same old stuff when everyone else is doing it? And he would tell me because I never pressed him for information, but he would say, "Oh yeah, once you're behind the camera and you're having people do things, you can you know people are so easily manipulated. Yeah, it's not hard to have them do crazy stuff, and that's why. I, but uh, you know, I've, I mean, I've, I've, I think I've seen new, was it New Age hookers, New Age hookers, like a thousand years ago. But you know, and by the, by the way, talk about history. Yeah. The original New Age hookers had Tracy Lord in yeah. it, 
And then, and then when they find out she was underage, they have to redo the movie. So they replaced her with Ginger Lynn, if I remember right. And um, there's a varied history. I mean, I don't know the history of that, but I remember that he he had a lot of he had some interesting stories himself because while well, talking out of school, I think that one point where um, he had one of these um, Godfather experiences where uh, either you sign the contract, your brains will be on the paper, you know, type of thing. Yeah. You know, because you know he um that's a business where you know there's some really um, cutthroat people in the in the porn business. It always been be, you know because a lot of uh, before porn became triple X and stuff. There's a lot of um they call them ruffies and nudie cuties and there were these films that you could see them now. I mean um and they were probably soft porn films and yeah. certain theaters would play them. But when you have, a lot of horror flick with nudity yeah, and exactly, sex, or, yeah. Right? yeah, it's some it's somewhat tongue in cheek like that you know um. Uh, I can't. The, the ones like the Beast of Hot. Uh, what's the one that with the Frankenstein? I can't. I've seen them all, by the way. And I can't. My 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 mind's drawn a blank. But but once you get into triple X films, yeah, the, the really hardcore pornography. Those theaters are owned mostly by like mob guys and stuff. So you know, if you were trying to make a triple X movie, you could only play it certain places, and those places were usually run by the mob. Yeah. And so that's you know, and there's, <clears throat> there's always been some famous films that like you know, we know people in common. They've had films made, and it was just. They never saw a dime one, you know, who you go to bed with. But um, a lot well, Deep of, Throat was one of the highest grossing film of well, all that's time. Crazy. I mean, it was just that was a cultural uh, phenomenon. I mean, people that was that was, I guess, that they call it the uh, chic porn, where people were. It was the bourgeoisie. People started to go see porn. They were taking, you know. I remember see, seeing Johnny Carson and Kissinger. Well, maybe not Kissinger, but Johnny Carson, big name people in New York City, L.A. They would go to this porn event, mm-hmm. and like it's unimaginable. You yeah, know? oh, you couldn't. I mean, it was just. It was so far. It was, it was almost like opening up another um, uh, um, culture to these people, like another breed of people. I mean, uh, and the hypocrisy is that uh, there's always been pornography. It's always existed. People. There was more access to upper class and people with money. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Now it's like it's like wow, this is the jet setters. And yeah. Stuff. These are the people that are really watching. And then you have, I mean, um, there was Deep Throat behind the green door. Yeah. You know, uh, the Devil, Devil Mrs. Jones. You had a couple. Of, you had some really, you know, seminal films that came out for a while there that just really that set the mark. And um, you're right because I I worked on David Tell's Dave's Old Porn. Oh yeah, I was enjoy- I was enjoyed that show. That was a fun. That was that was a fun walk down memory lane. That show. And I, I sometimes forget when I was working, I go, oh, yeah, I, I remember seeing these, but I never really saw them. In, when you're older, you have a little bit more appreciation. They're, yeah. they're actually not a bad films, actually. No, it's, not, it's funny because I look at some of the older Misty things. Misty Beethoven. The open yeah. Misty Beethoven. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about the, the porn industry is that if you looked at it back, I'd say, in the late 60s, probably just to say the 70s, we'll stick with that, there were stories. You know, of course, but, you know, so there was, there was you know, sex, but... There was there was stories there, and there were, and that was interesting. Guys were trying to make like I guess Joe Sarno and some of the other guys that were mm-hmm. trying to make you know, uh, and directors who had triple um, X features. They were trying to tell something besides just the pornography, and that's what I liked about sometimes too. That you know, they'd be zany comedies, or they'd be kind of crazy, you know, violent films. But there's always something. Uh, the porn just weren't just there were just scenes or segments of sex put together. There was interlocking story to hold them together. Yeah. Uh, today, and I don't. I'm not. I'm be honest. I'm not a big fan. I don't watch. Um, I have a lot of friends in the business. I just don't watch the porn anymore. But it just seems that now it's just one scene after another. It's it's like an action movie. It's like sometimes you know. Well, the way I describe it is like anti Pixar. It's like there's yeah. nothing interesting or original about it. Yeah. You know? No. It's just it's just um, and. 
I mean, I'll still watch them, but we're, we're, I, you know, I mean, you just came into, I'm watching martial arts films. I'm watching like the Hong Kong stuff. I mean, the, um, you see, we've become very jaded. I mean, how many things can you see? So how many fight scenes can you see? Yeah. I mean, you've got to really pull the stops off to blow people away. And they're doing that still. And porn, how many things can you do to just blow people away and stuff? I mean, when you go to a genre and pornography is a genre, martial arts is a genre, horror films, these are all genre films. And the fans now, after 20, 30, 40 years, you've, you've seen everything. You've really seen everything. Now you get cross culture, people cross pollinate back and forth. Yeah. And so you really have to come up with something original or something new to really keep people's interest. And the thing with pornography, you know, let's be serious, it serves a purpose. And now with the internet, you know, you surf the net and after three or four or five minutes, you're done. You're done with what you, what you need. And, and that's interesting because I'm surprised some businesses are still running. You know, I, I am too. Um, you're friend with Bill Lustig, right? I know Bill. I'm friendly. I'm friendly with Bill. My my good friend Steve is really good friends with Bill. I'm Bill's a guy I've wanted to have on my show. And um, before I met Bill, I was always a fan of Bill's work. I mean, I think as a director, but he started as a, in the yeah, porn business he, he started in New York City. Yeah. He started in um, and he's just a wealth of information. I mean, he's been on a lot of documentary shows. That's why I wanted to have him on my show. You know, wrestling with the pop culturians because sometime, but uh, Bill just he he's a wealth of information. I'm not just the porn business, but just like 42nd Street at the time in the 70s, the, the term The Grindhouse, um, he was there. He, his films were there. He was part of that scene. That was, um, that was a unique part of American history, at least cinematic history, which is, will never be seen again because of computers and internet and stuff. And yeah. that, was a, that was a small time. It, it, it is sad because it's, it's, it was a communal thing where you meet other people and, and experience the love that the yeah. movies and uh, these days you just download it. No, but that which is a, which is a crazy thing was I I was talking to mutual friends of ours um, when I was a kid in Boston I would go I would, when I was older I would take the train to New York once in a while I'd journey down there this is before they gentrified everything and I had pinpoint out the theaters I want to go to the movies yeah. I want to see and I would spend a day or two down there and I'd come back and that for me going down at a very very young age that was like six months worth of wow entertainment sure and then. I'd wait another six months and go down and, you know, just walk around the city and stuff and go back to Boston. But Boston, we had theaters like that also. Combat zone, the com- right? Well, the combat yeah. zone that was a, that was like a that was a rough area. The combat zone. I never had a problem there. I was you know I was a kid. I was working the nightclubs and I was that was like kid. Boston's version of uh, yeah, not this is a red light district, but, but it, it was a rough area. And but yeah. you know what happened was, if I recall. That you know, we people go in the combat zone. You have a good time. It's a rough area, but I remember one college, if I'm mistaken, one college kid get killed down there. It was mouthing off with something. He got hurt, got killed, and all of a sudden that just brought down a lot of heat. Yeah. And slowly the zone started from both ends getting chipped away. Let me guess, away. the kid was white kid. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If it was black or Latino, no, no, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't give a they, shit. They wouldn't. No, it, trust me, he must have been a white kid with some money, money exactly connection. connection. So, and the zone slowly started to get cut away and stuff. But there were these really crazy theaters that I would go to at midnight showing. There were times where I was the only white, sane person in the theater. I'm not making a racial statement. I mean, I was the only person that was lucid yeah. in the theater. And I would always go, and I sometimes I'd bring an ice pick with me just in case. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and sometimes just the only chance to see some of these, these movies, whether they were um, genre films. Like I remember I, uh, I went by myself to see Fulci's um, Zombie. Um, because I had seen, I think I'd seen one clip somewhere played at two o'clock in the morning, and I freaked like, oh my, I could see this movie, and it was playing at maybe one time at one in the morning, I forget where it was, but I took the truck in and I said, I've got to see this movie, and you know, you actually put your life on the limb sometimes back then, 
now today you sit down and the movies that we track down, you just click on a button and they're there in front of you in a way that's kind of, it's, it's very, it's very convenient. But to me as a kid growing up, it wasn't just seeing the movie. It was the journey to get to the movie. It was the trek to get to the movie. It was, it was the journey to get to see the concert, to go down to Thumb to see the Ramones, yeah. to see the Clash. I mean, when I, the first time I saw the Clash, that was an adventure in itself, to see the dead God boys. God damn it. I mean, these were just... The, the, I'm that, not a music person, but I would have loved watching... Oh, uh, the Clash. That Clash. was, I mean, the, the, the second or third time I saw them, uh, it was a funny story. I was at the Cape Cod Coliseum. And ironically, my wife now... I've only been married once, but I didn't know her at the time. She, we were both in high school. She was at the same show, and me and my best friend, uh, Eric... Wait, Sch- wait, how did you figure that out? Because we found out, we were talking once about our, our favorite groups and whatnot. She goes, yeah, I remember I saw the Clash at the Cape Cod Coliseum. I go, yes, yeah, so did I. And she goes, this day, I go, so... And we were there. She was up She was up on the balconies, and I was down below. Oh, that's and it was so ironic. Weird. And the funny thing is, you know, um, me and my buddy, Eric Shaver, we were the literally the first two people... In, in the Cape, in, in the theater, in the, in the Coliseum that night, we, we were waiting at the door and stuff. And long story short, we were picked to go in first, so we're right against the stage. And I had seen the Clash before, and, and they just they blow you away. And next to me, there was a fifteen-year-old girl, fifteen, sixteen-year-old girl sitting next to me. You know, you're checking her out; she's cute. And people started coming in. We were pressed against the um, this, this 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 stage, and there's an area where the bouncers were. And then there's a fence, like a little wooden fence. Yeah. And I remember being pressed against it. The clash comes on, and I noticed, I looked over, and I didn't see the girl. I didn't know where she went. I mean, this, it was impossible to go back. It was a, you couldn't get to the bathrooms. You couldn't, it was impossible. We were literally trapped against this wall. And I looked down, and she was crushed. She was being crushed. Oh, my God. And so I, I elbowed my buddy, Eric, and said, you know, she's getting crushed. So he's trying to push people back, and I'm trying to push people back. So... I kneel down to pick her up, and I get pushed against the wall. I mean, people just sort of surged, you know, and so, and they're stepping on her. So I sort of laid on top of her and trying to, you know, she was out. She was unconscious. Yeah. So I'm trying to shield her, and I'm realizing I'm going to get fucking crushed. So I did the only thing I could do. I just started punching guys in the balls. Yeah. I just started throwing uppercuts and stuff, and my friend started pushing people away. And my buddy goes, all you saw, guys just falling down. <laughs> That's the only thing I could do. I was just boom, uppercut, uppercut, uppercut. And I picked her up finally, and we had a little area after I, I think three or four guys fell, and I picked her up, and right next to us there was some scaffolding, some sort of, you know, to, off to the side, and I carried her up the scaffolding, you know, like I was Tarzan, and security came, and they, uh, and they were going, give us the girl, give us the girl, so I handed the girl who was limp at the time to the girl, and they said, you come with us, you come with us, I said, fuck that, right, and I was going to turn around and jump back into the crowd, and Joe Strummer was watching me the whole time, and he was just strumming and watching. And he looked at me and he pointed and he basically mouthed or yelled, says, you, down here. And he pointed to the stage and I jumped on the stage and I, I sat on the stage and he walked over and he threw me a concert shirt and he gave me the thumbs up sign. Yeah. And I was like, and that was the, my, I mean, I mean, Joe Strummer threw me a shirt and looked at me and he hit thumbs up for what I did. And I was like, in my head, as a kid, like, this was like, this was like. How old were you at when that oh, went? I was 17, 18. Yeah, I was young. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I was still, it was 82, I think. And it was just like, holy cow. The guy, I mean, the fact that we made eye contact, he saw what I did. Yeah. He gave me a shirt. Of course, the shirt was a medium. I took extra life. I still kept it. I didn't care. But it was, that was my first brush with any type of fame. And that was like, that was the most impressive. And it was a great show. They really were. When you look back at, you know, certain groups, I mean, um, they were, um, I hate to use it, seminal, but the clash just, 
there were punk groups and there was the clash and they just they just came up and they just changed the landscape with their music and what they stood for and what they did and i mean there's in people I, I love the quote henry rollins said henry rollins quoted you too wishes they were the clash you know and the clash didn't want to come on show to try to be that's what they were they don't they weren't trying to be they came out of a turmoil out of i've been i've been fans ever since when i heard that song police and thieves you know oh it's yeah. a great song yeah. Police and i mean and every song i mean they just the, the songs resonate with some sort of meaning and they weren't trying to force it they were coming out of the time they were coming out of a time in england in the 70s where there was depression people weren't working a huge unemployment rate uh civil disrest and this is what they're seeing so not they're not just musicians they were chroniclers at the time sure and their influences too when you listen to like you go you go back to london calling and you hear the the Scar influence you hear, the reggae influence, the rockabilly influence. I mean, this, this is a seamless album. Every track, is just, every track is a piece of a puzzle that once you put together, it becomes a masterpiece. You know, And there's a reason why London Calling still stands after all these. It's a reason why Rolling Stone called it the album of the 70s. There's a reason, and that's the, reason, the number one album. Yeah. Um, I, I love doing podcasts because you never know where the conversation will go, and I don't like dictating, but I, this, this is really surprising. Like, I, I, li I love Clash, too, and I'm not, I'm not a music guy, but I, um, I have a lot of questions for you because, you know, you, you know so much about wrestling. You work for Vince McMahon, WWE, yeah, I worked for and him, yeah. you have love for wrestling, whether if they're Mexican-style or Japanese-American Jap yeah, style, yeah. and your love of music. But I think the number one thing that we both uh, have a common... We, our love of uh, quality, quality violence. You oh, know, absolutely, yeah, we, 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 and um, <laughs> quality and quantity. If you're lucky, <laughs> I I, um, I was telling my friend about this story. This is about 20 years ago, and I think you might appreciate this. But one time, I was with my one of my close friend Koshiro. He's he's a um, Japanese guy from Okinawa. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like the Puerto Ricans of Japan. Oh, you know? well, that that's like, I can imagine the West Side Story there, <laughs> well. and. We went to a party, and there happened to be a guy from his hometown, and the guy was drunk. And he starts asking all these invasive questions about Koshiro's dad. So recently, well, in 20 years ago, there was a big newspaper article about Koshiro's dad losing everything, you know, yeah. recession, factory, losing yeah. money. It's a private matter. It's embarrassing. It's his business. Yeah. But I mean, this drunk motherfucker keeps asking questions about it. And... Koshiro gave me this look, and I it just, I started laughing because I know what's going to happen next. So I've been asking this question every time I do a show and, and, and give this narrative, right? Yeah. So yesterday when I was in the show, like, okay, you're a Scottish guy, you're 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 Jamaican, you're from Russia. You thought I'm doing show. Yeah. If somebody did that to you and someone that you love and care, and they're asking all this private question publicly embarrassing you and, and your family what would you whether was that a hesitation all three say oh knock the motherfucker out most japanese won't do that yeah what they do and, and the koshiro did exactly the way he uh, i knew he was going to do it we uh, we waited until next day yeah. when he's sober that way when we beat him up he knows <laughs> the reason why we're beating and you he feels up. it more yeah, yeah. because if we wrong to just beat that guy and he doesn't know why he got beat up, we want to make sure yeah. we're going to beat your face in yeah. after. In fact, you know, that, a, it, this is how much Asian people want to educate people, yeah. right? And when it, even when it comes to beating somebody up. So next day we went to his house. And <laughs> we just opened the front door 
and we just walked into his house. Here's the thing. When you have two or more Japanese people walking into your house and they don't take their shoes off, some yeah. fucked up thing's going to happen. Because yeah. we walked in and basically he has two other roommates, but, you know, they're five foot two and nothing. And I'm six foot one and I'm with another guy. There's three of them, but two guys basically watch. And there was a great scene in uh, Beat Takeji's first movie that he directed. Oh, I'm a big fan of him. Um, Sanatang, where. Yeah, Sanatang. Where, you know, in Japan, these kids will make origami of two ori- uh, sumo wrestlers. Yeah. You put it on the table, and you start hitting the table really hard. Yeah. And when you hit it hard, those paper uh, sumo will start moving around, and one will push the other one down. Well, basically, I'm, we made the victim stand like a sumo wrestler. <laughs> and my friend Kosher without the sumo wrestler. And I'll tap the ground like I'm moving them. But as I'm tapping them, all he's doing is he's slapping the shit out of this kid. And we basically... I mean, he did the most of the slap beating him up i did a little bit of it yeah. but basically i was a choreographer oh yeah say hey grab his hand just slam it against the wall you're like the felonious bob fossey <laughs> is that what it's that's what you are okay because, so we, we just beat him up for two hours oh, that's oh, listen that's okay i mean you know because it's it's, it's he's japanese of, he's not gonna call the cops no I, absolutely not. well if you, i remember uh, uh katano's film violent cop where he oh yeah he interrogates the guy, he's slapping that kid for like five minutes straight and that's just uh and i i i love katano stuff i th- I, I think the fact that he was a comedian coming in and making these films and is, because japanese is my first language it was really interesting when i i was too young to remember but i i watched some of the youtube clips it's a little shocking for me to watch him do stand up because he was talking about stuff that i would talk mm-hmm. these days but he'll make fun of like you know burn victims and like yeah. midgets and kids with cancer yeah. and like stuff that i love but this is like in, in late 60s and 70s in japan and he was the only guy who, who he was doing, like the lenny blues yeah, <laughs> Lenny Bruce Lee. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's all. That's yeah. I love that. But uh, you know, and I think because um, I I knew Takashi as first the director, and then when you look back, it's like it's it's like watching Jerry Lewis make like Goodfellas. Yeah, you know, way to some extent. You know, wow, I didn't realize this guy had a different career as a comedian and stuff. Then when you see over here, they did that. Uh, well, it was a shock to most Japanese people because they just remember him as like a crazy yeah. funny person yeah you know? no, but and, but as a filmmaker i mean he's got a great visuals i mean as an actor whether he's in battle royale which is uh, kenji fukasaka's film yeah uh or whether he's directing a which film which hunger games ripped off yeah, which, oh, please yeah i mean i remember when battle royale came out here to the american cinema well by the way people who are listening to the show maybe they don't know what the movie's about you want to explain well the battle, battle royale is based on a book which i have a, right over there um a novel and what it is in, is in the future the the dystopian future japan that Crimes are out of control. The kids are out of control. So uh, the Japanese government has um, devised a way to keep um, juvenile crime down. And so what happens in the film, Takashi Katano is a teacher of a class, and he takes his class on a field trip, high school class, you know, yeah. kids 15, 16, and they're all dressed in you know, uniforms, the girls sure. have skirts, and the boys have the ties. And as they go through this tunnel, uh, a gas comes in and knocks out all the kids. And they find themselves uh, on an island. They wake up on an island out in the Pacific somewhere, and it's a banded Japanese military base, I think, and the kids all have on their neck these um, little collars, right? metal yeah. collars on their necks, boys and girls, and they have, uh, they all have a knapsack, and within the knapsack there's a map of the island and some type of utensil or weapon that they can use. It could be a weapon, it could be a, uh, a, a washcloth, but something that yeah. use a weapon. And basically it becomes uh, a, a bigger version of the most dangerous game, which is a short story that Richard Connell wrote. And, and the kids basically have to kill each other. You know, best friends and girlfriends have to, you know, you have to come down to one kid alive 
And that person will get out of the island. And you get out of the island. So, you know, and it's a, it's a really crazy concept, but the way Kenji Fukasaka does it and the way these guys pull it off, it's absolutely amazing. And, and, it, it, and I had never seen the Hunger Games. I really didn't care. But to Battle Royale, just literally, when it comes to action and violence and just, you know, making a statement about the future of Japan. and um, It's violent. It was fun. unbelievable. At one point, there was, this, there was every, these dramatic blood scene, um, scenes, and one person just yelled up and goes, God damn it. And, and Kenji was there, and I was, I mean, I remember this was coming, and I told my friends, I said, you guys better buy your tickets now. You better buy your tickets now, because I get the magazine Asian Cult Cinema, which is yeah. a great magazine. The Thomas Wiesa puts such a great, and they talked about the film. So when I do the American Cinematheque was going to show it, I bought my tickets weeks ahead of time, and it was on a Friday night. And literally that day, the LA Times wrote about the this violent movie being banned, so everyone was clamoring to get tickets at the time. It was too late, and I remember walking past my friends, waving my ticket like a real prick, and sitting down. <laughs> hey, I got my I got my ticket three weeks ago, and it was a great film. And and Kenji Fukasaka is a great director. I mean, he in Japan, he's noted for Battles of Honor and Humanity. With Bunta Sugoro, he does amazing uh, films. I think with, Quentin Tarantino's a big fan of. Oh, he's a, yeah, Quentin, yeah. Quentin really knows. But the, the film that he's known here for, um, he did a film, American co-production called Green Slime. And, I don't know anything about that. Oh, it's a great. I mean, it really, it has it has the greatest theme song ever in a, in a movie. Uh, it's called Green Slime, and I think it's Robert Del Vecchio does it. But um, it has Richard Jekylls in it and uh, Road Reasons and. Um, and it's it's just a great fun horror film. A lot of people sort of it's regulated to B stature. Yeah. But it, it's it's a fun fun film. And he sort of when I met, I brought some lobby cards and I, I asked if he would sign it. He gave me this look. He rolled his eyes. He smirked. He goes, "Oh, I like this." He signed very cool about it. He did another film in 1980 called Virus with a Glenn Ford, I think, and Bo um, Bo Fenson. And it was an interesting film about the end of the world. But his Japanese films, the films where he's in Japan making these films, these post World War II Japanese Yakuza films. Yeah. Really amazing stuff. I mean he he died he died not he died before Battle Royale too. His son took over the reins of that. But he is a director, you know, I mean Quentin really knows his stuff and he appreciates the Japanese stuff. And uh, at the time Chris D, who was programming the American Cinematheque, was Chris D and Dennis Bartok. It, and, it, wait, wait, I think Steve mentioned that guy before. He wrote a yeah, he huge wrote, book about oh, Japanese Amazing Christy Christy wrote, I mean, two books and Two um, amazing books about Japanese cinema. One is called Outlaw Masters, which I have over there, signed. And I mean, if anyone, I mean, he is. Did he write another one where it's all about mobsters, yakuza, yakuza, yeah. yakuza stuff? And that was a that was a big tome. That, that took him yesterday. But Chris really knows his stuff. I mean, he's an interesting cat. He's the guy you want to talk to. Was he's a poet? He's a writer. He was the lead singer to a punk group called the um, the Flesh Eaters. Then he was in the Divine Horsemen. So um, he's a really cool cat and stuff. He knows this stuff. He's a really good guy and a real, real film expert, uh, genre guy. And at one point, the American Cinematheque was the place, I thought, in America to watch movies when Chris was the programmer. Dennis Bartok was a good friend of mine. He's now a director and producer. He was, they, these guys were bringing in uh, films and directors and, and writers and uh, film series that were unheard of. Yeah. And both had left the American Cinematheque to do other things. And... Um, it's still a good organization, but, you know, right now the films, uh, I don't want to say they're pedestrian, but, you know, when I go to a movie, I only go to one place. I go to the New Beverly, which is happened to be Quentin's Theater, but Quentin's owned that theater for seven years. I've been going there for 25 years. Yeah. The Americans, you know, the New Beverly Cinema. It really is an institution in LA. Oh, it, it, it really is because it's been there for years, and now my friend Brian Quinn, is the uh, he runs it for Quentin, and it, it's just an amazing theater. If you're a film lover, um, it used to be every two weeks there'd be Grindhouse films. Now, I asked Quentin, are these going to be more often? He goes, every week, every Tuesday. 
and then he'll do like a, he'll take a he just did a Richard Fleischer retrospect he'll do there are kitty matinees on Sunday as I take my son to the kitty matinees two o'clock we saw Iron Giant we saw Jack the Giant's Lady Original we saw War of the Worlds yeah you know so he he presents film the way they should be seen you should still you should see film on the big screen that guy. I'm a big fan of his, yeah. and, and I like him because he owns the theater I go to. That's why I mean, I'll kiss. I he owns my the theater I love, so I, he's number. He's okay in my book, and he he really is fan of entertainment because one time when he was promoting, um, what's that movie that he with Brad Pitt with all the Nazis? Oh, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, and they were in Japan, and it was one of those wacky Japanese shows. And what other Japanese shows are there? That well, I, okay. It was one of, one of those wacky Japanese shows, and I, I was at the Tonight Show, and he was there as a guest. And I, I was blown away because he was explaining about the show, and I thought, oh, he just knows some superficial shit. But he knew every detail about the no. show in another language, you know? And, like, I'll he, say, he just loved entertainment. I'll tell you about this guy. I mean, um, I've ran into him a couple times here in the Utah. I mean, I, I'm... He's friends, you know, we have everyone has people in common, but he's well read, and I'll tell you why. Because if um when you when you read certain things, uh I um when you read like Dust Till Dawn, when you see the film Dust Till Dawn, uh which is the Robert Rodriguez film, and um <clears throat> he keeps um and Rodriguez you know that they worked on it a little together, but you know, Tarantino's well read. And he reads a lot of crime novels, a lot of things I read. And if you if you look at the Rodriguez film *Dust Till Dawn*, um, George Clooney keeps you know, referencing that we've got to, we have to get to El Rey. We've got to get you know they're they're convicts and he's a yeah. brother. So, you know Tarantino helped them break out of prison. And they try, they have to get out of America to get to Mexico. And the place in Mexico they want to get to is called El Rey. And it's ironic that Rodriguez has named his network El Rey, but in the book in the Jim Thompson book *The Getaway*. Uh, Doc McCoy and his wife Carol have to get to El Rey. They're escaping. He's a, he's, he robbed a bank. He's out of prison. And he has to get out of the country. And he has got to get to El Rey. Now, when you watch Dust Till Dawn, George Clooney's character keeps saying, I've got to get to El Rey. We're, gonna, we're going to El Rey. He's telling his brother Quentin, we've got to get to El Rey. And if you read the book, The Getaway, and you understand what the book's about, when George Clooney leaves that vampire nightclub at the end and goes to El Rey, he's going someplace worse. I mean, he just fought a night full of vampires, and where he's going in Mexico is basically worse. And so the, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, and the thing about that is, I mean, um, because they made a TV version of it. I watched the whole season. W- w- yeah. Which, which, um, which I, I haven't seen yet. Um, but in that story, Dust Till Dawn, when George Clean drives <clears> away, <throat> uh, when you know, if you read The Getaway, and and Peck and Paul made the film in the early seventies with Steve McQueen and Ellie McGraw, and it's one of these films where the last chapter of the book it hits you. It's like a slap across the face. It's something that's almost unfilmable, really, if you think about it. Uh, it becomes uh, purgatory. And it's not in the Peckinpah film. It doesn't end that way. He just ends with Steve McQueen and Alan McGraw driving away. I never saw the remake. But, you know, it's really... And Jim Thompson's a writer who's very, very dark. I mean, I've always loved this guy. I was reading this guy when I was 12. He's very dark, sinister work. And there have been times, one of his books, where the POV, you're the victim. At the end of the story, you know, you're, the POV is you're being chopped to death by a woman, and you're telling the story. You know, he, like Savage Night, uh, Hell of a Woman, um, After Dark, My Sweet. I mean, the guy's, the guy's just an, was an amazing writer, and people like Rodriguez and Tarantino and others, you know, realized this. In fact, it wasn't until the 90s when Black Lizard, uh, their publishing company, Black Lizard started reprinting Jim Thompson's novels. Um, David Goodis, Cornel Woolrich, these are the guys that really 
set the bar, lowered it, if you want to say, for, for, for noir, very dark, dark stuff, subject matters, you know. And for years as a kid, I'd have to track this stuff down, um, secondhand, thirdhand bookstores. And find it. Just like I was going to see movies at the, the yeah. raunchiest theaters, I'd have to go to the worst bookstores to find the books that influenced me. Can we can we uh, talk a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up? Oh, in that's that's lovely. Sure. But before we do that, I, I, I do want to uh, mention why I brought Bill Lustig because yeah. Bill, they, uh, they porn stuff early on, uh, I think working in family business or whatnot, and he ended up making his classic Maniac, Maniac Cop. And oh, those are like, great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, those are great. They're, they're remaking those movies. Yeah. And, uh, um, but he's friend with Nicholas Reffin, who did uh, yeah. uh, Pusher 1, 2, and 3, and Drive. Drive. Yeah, yeah he, and, uh, Valhalla Rising, and Bronson, which... Uh, yeah. It's funny, I was at dinner once, um, sitting across from him, uh, this is what, um, Toby's like 65th birthday party. And you're talking about Toby, Toby Hooper? Hooper. Yeah, I, was, I brought... I mean, Texas Chainsaw. Mexico, Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. I'm, very, I'm very, very close to Toby, so I, I invited... Um, I took Toby to a, uh, it was a surprise party for him, and um, Mick Garris was there. He was holding it. Mick Garris, the director, and John Landis was there, and Guillermo del Toro, and Michael. Oh, John Mike, Landis, that's huge. Oh, Michael I'm Mann was there. Yeah. Wendis was I mean, it was a fucking who's who of people. It, it, everyone and me, right? You know, and uh, and um, but I was sitting across from Nicholas, and I didn't. I mean, I nice guy. I didn't see his films at the time. To be honest, this was a couple yeah. years ago, so I had no reference point. Brian Trenchard Smith was sitting next to me and stuff, and he's done some great stuff too. Brian Trenchard Smith, he's an Australian director, and his stuff's just amazing. Turkey shoot. A dead and driving. So there was, I mean, there was a lot of talent at the table, and they all came to uh, wish Toby the best. I mean, guys, you get guys like Michael Mann, Wim Wenders, John Landis. I mean, genre guys. There it was, it was a who's who of people, you know. And it was, and, and they all came to give uh, their blessing to Toby, you know. But um, I like uh, Nicholas's stuff. I think um, I thought Bronson was amazing. I, I I thought it was an amazing movie. I loved it. I loved it, and I went to um, not New Beverly. What's that place on um, the Cine Family? Is that in La Cine? Uh, oh, that's uh, Fairfax. Fairfax. Yeah, that used to be the old silent movie theater. It is the silent movie theater. The, the, that I place. saw. I went to the premiere, and uh, Nicholas Reffin was there, and also Leonardo DiCaprio and his buddy Toby. Uh, I could never was say his last name. McGuire? The Spider Man. Uh, Tom McGuire. Yeah, he was yeah, there I, too. I never saw Spider Man. And the guy who played Bronson was there. I never, oh, Tom Hardy. Yeah, Tom yeah, Hardy he was, was there. He was great. And, I said hello. He was very polite, mm. and I, I, I thought, wow, he, he's going to be a huge star. And there's some. He had this. And I mean, obviously, uh, DiCaprio is a movie star. You know, he, he really. Oh, he, he, he's beyond. He, he's he's literally. You could say he's like this generation's Cary Grant. Yeah, he really is. I mean, and, and at first, people you know didn't like the kid. With this, I don't. People were very jealous, but he's a good actor. He should have won the Oscar for that. The, the, the Wolf well, of he's, um, he's, he's a great actor. I mean, he's he's a good looking. He's a good actor, and and he we've we've seen we've as the public have seen this kid grow up in front of our eyes. We've seen him, you know, what's eating Gilbert Grape, his earlier roles, and we've seen this kid actually metamorphosed in, into a. a I great, loved him in Departed, man. Oh, he was. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's my neck of the woods. That was you know coming, up, which is based on a Japanese film, in front of Fair, which is really a, a taunt, you know. Um, Film, you know, I think it was, was. I think it was a Hong Kong movie. I think. Yeah, Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was. It was. Andy Liao. It was. I think Anthony Wong was in it. Yes, you're right. So it was. Yeah, and that was that. That I saw that. And that and that's a. I think there's two or three of those. That was a really intense version of that movie. You know. And I brought it. Bill Lustig, Nicholas Reffin, because Nicholas Reffin brought this idea to um, uh, Bill Lustig 
build a couple of porn. So his, he said, why don't we do commentary for both of your porn movie? And Nicholas Reffin and Bill Lustig did it for two of his movies. Oh, really? Yeah, it's oh. a porn. And Steve loaned me the movie. I still haven't listened to it, watched it. I will um, hopefully sometime this year. But yeah, it's, it's a small world. I love whenever... Um, I get really excited when I meet someone they're uh, excited about whatever they're, they have a passion in. passion, yeah. Yeah, and of course, because living in, in L.A., I met guy like you, uh, Damon Packard, and Steve Catani. Just, I love movie, but Hold you guys, the, the you guys, are, and you guys are another level, man. I mean, um, rest of development. We never grew up. We never matured past a certain level. I think the three <laughs> of us were sort of stuck in the rut of eternally, like fourteen years old. So, so you were born in Boston, right? Well, north of Boston, I was born in a mill town, a real shithole called Lawrence. Lawrence, man. At one point, Lawrence used to be like a great mill city. It was mm-hmm. uh, textile mills and. Um, we I lived on a hill, and as a kid, you looked down into the city. All you saw were church steeples and smokestacks, I and mean, that was the horizon. And then once you know um, the work went down south, and the mills started closing, a massive depression came, and the city became a, a, like a, a war zone. And as a kid, I'd walk through these old um, the factories. I mean, they would go for miles, and, I, and there were near the canals and stuff. And I'd walk yeah. to the factories and stuff, and it was almost like post-apocalyptic. It really was. It was like walking through sometimes a very depressing Edward Harper painting, and the city was depressed and the economy was down. It was, the, it was a bad. And I think that's one of the reasons I started, you know, drawing comic strips and writing and f- finding movies. So, you know, everything's a sense of escapism. I mean, I, I realized that oh, I can't live here. But you, uh, it sounds like you you're, you did not come from a show business family. Oh, not at all. Oh, fuck no. Show business family? No, no. You know, my mother's very, my mother was a, at the time was a nurse, uh, or my father taught literature. So I was always. He was a professor. Yeah, he taught. He taught, he taught uh, private high schools and stuff. Private yeah. schools, and uh, um, he has a couple of master's degrees. But he, he taught. He taught literature. He taught sports journalism. He, he he reads Cervantes in Spanish. You know, he writes to my son, um, his grandson, in code. You know, and he writes. He'll write a letter in code. My son has to decode it and stuff. Yeah. You know? So, I I always had books around the house. I always sure. had books. My, plus, he was a bodybuilder, <laughs> so. Our entire house, the cellar was barbells and books. I thought everyone had that. I mean, growing yeah. up, um, you know, his best friend was Mr. America. He was my dad was Mr. Boston, Mr. You, you know, Mr. Bay State. So you go in our cellar, there'll be thousands of books and just a gym down there. Yeah. And I thought that everyone had. I thought every kid had you know had to lift weights and read books. I didn't know any different. And that was the. I grew up with that appreciation for like wrestling and weight powerlifting, weightlifting, and then. What, 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 where did the wrestling thing come from? Was was it through your dad? Well, or? my dad was my dad was a. a a real wrestler. So he was a, a champion wrestler, um, Greco-Roman freestyle yeah. wrestler and stuff. And you know, but when you get when you're training with them um, in a gym, you train with all types of guys. You train with wrestlers, pro wrestlers. You're, you know, uh, there's a certain commonality and stuff. Sure. So he knew some pro wrestlers and stuff. And um, I fell in love with pro wrestling because to me, uh, it was it was the drama. It was, it was the theatrics. It was like watching performance art. I mean, as a kid growing up in the late '70s in Boston, this is before cable. There was no internet and wrestling. The entire country uh, was divided in territories. Every part of the country had a wrestling territory. Uh, up north, where I was from, New England, that area was the WWF at the time, and that was Vince McMahon Senior. And he had that that territory locked up. And down south, I mean, Texas had like five territories. You, you, Joe Blanchett had a territory. The Guerreros ran El Paso. WCCW was run by the Von Erichs. You know, Roy Shire ran up north, up here, up in up San Francisco. Mike LaBelle ran L.A. I mean, you had the NWA, AWA, the whole kike, the entire country was divided into yeah. territories, and so all I knew as a kid was, you know, the WWE, the wrestlers I saw in Saturday, 
Saturday mornings and stuff. And it wasn't until I started reading wrestling magazines and going, who are these other wrestlers? Who's yeah. Harley Race? Who's Rick? I mean, I, at the time, it sounds crazy, but I didn't know who these guys were. I didn't see these guys. They weren't on my television set. And then once I started reading wrestling magazines, I go, this is interesting. And then I started reading, once in a while, there'd be an article about uh, Mil Mascaras or El Santo. And that's when I fir- I mean, my first glimpse of mass wrestling, Mexican wrestling, was in these magazines. I go, this is interesting. Because it wasn't, a, we, we didn't really have that mass wrestling in, a, in a, where I was. So I found that fascinating. And then slowly, um, they started showing the Santo films, but they weren't, they redubbed them to call Samson. Because mm-hmm. I guess they thought Americans are too stupid to realize what Santo meant. But they redubbed the films as Samson films, and they were playing on the UVH stations. And, and that's another thing. At the same time, I was, I was reading these magazines and reading these books, and uh, these movies are popping up. So all, within the span of a couple of years, the in- things that influenced me as a kid have influenced me later on. I never really grew up, basically. That's the yeah. problem. That's the problem. I'm, this, I'm still perpetually 12, 13 years old, reading pulp novels, bad movies, and wrestling. You know, go, go figure. It, it's, it's so weird that uh, people who uh, make fun of wrestling or whatever, I, I think those people don't understand, like, it's how incredible wrestling is. Like, these guys, they, they think they're fake or whatever, but if you're, like, 250-pound guy, get on top of it, Jumping on another guy. There's a lot of trust involved. Athleticism, oh, oh, well, showmanship. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. No matter what, you, you take a, just strip apart the physicality, the showmanship, the athleticism. You strip that aside. What wrestling is, it's, it's, the, manipul- it's the manipulation of emotion. Yeah. Wrestling is all psychology. You could be the greatest physical specimen in the world, but if you don't have psychology, if you don't know how to work the crowd, then you're just like any other schmuck. And so when you really look at wrestling as an art form, and people chuckle and say, but when, you, when it's done well, it's amazing. Because people say, I say, do you like action movies? Do you like horror movies? Do you like comedies? Yeah. Well, sometimes that's all in wrestling. A good wrestling crowd will have a humorous match, an intense match, yeah. a funny match. It's all, but it's all tangible. It's right there. And, you know, we all know Darth Vader's not real. We know that Spider-Man's not real. But, and so once you sit down in the arena, you look at the ring, and it's the suspension of disbelief. You can believe, when, if you see a guy walk in the ring wearing a mask, yeah. El Santo, and you believe he's a masked wrestler, then you believe he's wrestling his, ba- his villain, you believe he's fighting vampires tonight, he's fighting Nazis, like all the movies he did, and you just go with it. You, 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 you become, you, you, you're a, at one point you're a voyeur, and at another point you become, not just a voyeur, you become a participant, in that. you're in that world. And that's the great thing about wrestling, about Mexican wrestling, the Japanese wrestling. When it's done well, it becomes an art form. It's performance art. I mean, I've worked some angles, and I, I hate to say I knew it was fake, but I was working some angles that were very emotional because you, you're investing your time and um, empathy and emotion with these angles. And it all comes down to storytelling, good guy versus bad guy. It's, it, no matter what it is, everything comes down to protagonist, antagonist, good guy, bad guy, or is the same the business, heel versus face, and everything culminates inside the ring. It's... it's uh like we were talking before we recorded, Ronda Rossi recently won oh. 16 seconds, 14 seconds, whatever she's it is. Amazing. She's yeah. amazing. But she's the, it's amazing. She's the biggest star out of mixed martial arts. Bigger than even men, men fighting, right? Yeah, she's a, she is. A, and the one thing about her is. Um, she, 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 by the way, she she's, a, the, she's a fan of wrestling, so she understands she, that showmanship. You know? she, she's trained by the guy that trained me, Gene LaBelle. I trained with Gene years ago. Oh, I didn't ago. know she worked. Gene LaBelle. You look in the corner. Gene's there. Gene LaBelle. I trained with Gene for years. I trained with Gokua. Great guy. I mean, the, these are the best guys you want to meet. The toughest guys you want to meet. But really cool cats. And um, she, she's in a very nurturing place. Yeah. People that, people that care about her. People, 
beyond knowledgeable and beyond tough. So she's in a good environment, but she has the she's really got the goods. I mean, I followed her for a long time, and I, I follow the the sport, but she really is. And, and um, total package. I she's mean. the total package. And, and Joe Rogan. And it's funny. Uh, Joe Rogan said the same thing. And as I said to my friend watching the fight, I go, she's not just. She doesn't have the best arm bar for a woman, for anyone. And I, when you notice what she does is a lot of times in, in um, mixed martial arts, when um, they clash, they, they go into each other, they go, they hit on the ground. Usually it's um, the fighters will hit each other, they'll, they'll wrestle, grab, and they'll go onto the ground, and they fight for position. You know, so it's, it's, they're fighting up top, and then they go to the ground, so it's always one or two moves, mm-hmm. steps. Rhonda, when she's falling, she's falling into position. It's, it's fluid, whether she's standing up or she's, when she's falling down, she's already getting into position. There's no hesitation. There's no second move for her. When Kat came at her, she, she went up top, grabbed her. As she came down, she knew where she was going. She was falling into position. That's why it, took, it basically took 10 seconds. It took four seconds to charge her, 10 seconds to grab her, and two seconds to grab and almost rip her arm out. So she has an amazing natural ability to, to fall right into position, and, and, and it's a devastating position. And, and you She's could, brilliant. And you couldn't do any better. I mean, no. not even movie could have done better than... No, uh, no you couldn't. Uh, yeah. she, I mean, literally, I mean, I wanted to see a good fight, of course, um, but I thought that was better. She just came out and... And all props to her. She came down. She hugged yeah. her opponent, gave her a kid, and says, you know, this is what it's about. And, and she understands that it's showmanship, just like you said. Um, wrestling, boxing, MMA, even though they're athletes, there's a sense of showmanship. Absolutely. You have to have – I mean, I said earlier tonight, Adrian Broner fought tonight. And um, I was watching him fight. And I've seen him fight a lot of times. And he, a lot of fans don't like him. They, they purposely don't like Broner. And they don't like Floyd Mayweather. But the thing is – when you become, when you step in the ring, two guys, someone by proxy has to be the bad guy. Yeah. And Broner realizes this is a show. He doesn't say I'm a fighter. He says I'm an entertainer. My job is hitting people in the face. But I'm an entertainer. So he realizes, you know, love him or hate him, you have to talk about him. So he takes on the role as being the bad guy, you know. And 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 Floyd Mayweather does that. You know, he knows how to sell tickets because no matter what, it's a lot easier to be hated than to be loved. And people will come see you, whether it's boxing or wrestling. If they despise you, they'll spend the extra money to see you get beat. And you know what's funny thing? I, I think Floyd Mayweather, he probably is a nice guy. Oh, he probably is. He's probably a great guy. I, I really think he's and a nice he's, guy. He's probably a great guy. And, you know, and people, I've always heard people say, you know, I'm a, I'm a big He's a motherfucker guy. when he's fighting. Oh, well, he's, well he, I mean, people, are, I mean, I've seen a lot of movies. I've seen more fights than I've seen movies. I mean, I'm a big, big fight fan. And people always say they don't like Floyd Mayweather. They don't like this. They can do this. He should do this to beat him. I say, well, show him how to beat him. Show me. Give me the game plan. He's had over 40 fights, no one's beat him. So you show me on, on paper how you think you're going to beat this guy. Because he's forgotten more than people will know. And the thing is, he's a devastating uh, counterpunch. And, he fight, and he, what he can do, if you watch him, he can throw punches going backwards. Yeah. Very hard to do. You know, so he's patient. He's a smart. He's a very smart fighter. And very difficult to hit. Oh, that you can't. Very hurt difficult you, to hit. You can't hit what you can't. You can't hurt what you can't hit. You know, so people that don't. I mean, a lot of people don't like that style. They say, you know, he's. But his the bottom line is to win. You, you know, you put yeah, on a He's show, a brilliant guy. He's a, an amazing. Te- so show me how you're going to beat him. Yeah. You know, and um, the fight coming up. I've waited for this fight for a long time. Pacquiao. I mean, I'm a Pacquiao fan, but. And May second, May second. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's actually eight weeks from tonight. I'm, I'm counting down. I, 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 I actually know exactly how long it is. But and you know, I think Pacquiao has, has been another fan favorite. He knows how to turn around. But he's been in a lot of brutal wars. He really has. And who's and that, the guy that he lost? Uh, lost two year and a Mar- half. Marquez. Marquez knocked him out. And oh, I mean, oh no! Oh, Timothy. I mean, was it was Bradley? It, Bradley. Yeah, it was. The, he lost the decision to Bradley. 
Um, and I was at the Comedy Magic Club and I was talking to uh, Gary Shandling. Yeah. And Gary Shandling's a fan of boxing. Oh, yeah, he is. I see him sometimes at the, at the fights. And I, I was telling him the reason why Pacquiao lost because he didn't want to hurt the guy. He could have knocked that guy out. And he should have. And Freddie Roach probably wanted him to knock him out, but he didn't want to hurt the guy. So the fight just dragged in, and the guy got lucky hit and hit Manny in the face. I mean, that hit, when he, he dropped like that, I thought oh he no, was that, dead. Marquez knocked him out. Marquez, Marquez knocked, knocked Pacquiao. I remember seeing that. That was in the fourth, fourth round. But He looked like he, he died, man. Yeah, he was, was, well, he, he was going into the punch. It's, fun, it's funny because he had fought. This was the fourth time him Marquez fought. Mm. And after a while... You fight enough times, you're going to know something about you. You become, yeah. very, you become very intimate, and it's funny. Um, you're in a ring with someone trying to kill somebody, and you really know as much about this guy as anyone does. And if you look at like, with uh, Terry Gaddy and Mickey Ward, and they had three of the best. They had one of the greatest boxing trilogies of all time. And I'll never forget at the beginning of the last round of the last fight. Wait, is that is that one of the five? One guy was. Looked like he's gonna lose and come back later on and yeah. beat that guy. Yeah, that was that was them. That was the Wood, Mickey Wood, Irish Mickey Wood, and uh, Tyrrell Thundergaddy. And, and at the end, at the beginning of the very last round, the thirtieth round, yeah, um, Wood and Gaddy get in the middle of the ring and they give each other a hug and a kiss, and then they beat each other's brains in. You know, and but that's but that's what boxing is about. It's like you know, you're as close to this guy as you ever. I mean, you really, you share you share an intimacy that no one else has. Sure. And nothing, I, nothing's more intimate than getting your face yeah, punched I, I, in. Yeah, and, and it becomes, I mean, I, I did some boxing years ago, but not to that extent, but there becomes a mutual respect. When you realize the guy has given everything he can, he's given everything he can, and back and forth, and something like that, you, 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 have a, you share something that no one else has. I mean, Gaddy and Ward, they, should, they had a, a relationship no one else had, and Marquez and Pacquiao, after the fourth time they had this, and, you know, Marquez was a you know, patient fighter, tough fighter, uh, and he knew Pacquiao, and Pacquiao was actually coming into that punch. If you look at it's coming, you know, he was coming in, and that punch was just timed perfectly. I mean, he hit him like he was hit with a stun gun. And it was I mean, it. he just fucking dropped, dude. Yeah, and oh it's the funny God. thing is, I think once it's funny because before Manny found God, you know, <laughs> before he found G, and I didn't think I didn't think God was lost, but he was cockfighting, gambling, partying, and now he's going to church. He's I go. And it shows that once again, religion takes takes the edge off. You, you, you people, you really lose, you know, that killer yeah. edge sometimes. You know, and I wish he'd go back to being a pagan, you know, or being you know because he's losing. He he'll need to be a, a pagan fighting Mayweather. He can't find he, there can be no Christian love, you know, come May second. He's got to go out there and do his best. Because yeah. remember the fight Floyd Mayweather had, and and for a second the guy he was fighting thought there was a pause. Because the referee did yeah, something. Yeah, the Victor Ortiz. That was the stupidest. Yeah. And he he stood yeah. there and took two punches from uh, Floyd Mayweather. And some people complain that that's a dirty play, but no, that, that was it's not part. a dirty because referee didn't stop the fight. And uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, Mayweather, his job is to win. He saw opportunity. He just hit the guy twice, and then second hit, he went down. I mean. No, that 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 showed me right there and then. Oh, Mike, you want to put Mike close to you? Yeah. Um, that showed me right there and then how smart he was. Yeah. Because this is a sport. The last thing the referee tells you is protect yourself at all times. Protect yourself at all times. And you know what? The referee didn't stop. And Victor Ortiz, I mean, he did the stupid. He, he tried to headbutt him, and he tries to make up with him. And yeah. he tries to do some, uh, let me shut this up. I don't know who's doing this, you know. Um, he, he tried, no worries. He, he tries to, uh, you know, make up for it. Yeah. And he paid the ultimate price. And I, th I think that that was, um, 
I, that was a brilliant move on his part. If you, if you look what Mayweather did, he saw an opportunity, and he, he jumped for it. And I think that was... Uh, that guy's a killer, man. He's a killer, he, and he knows when to kill. He knows how to kill. He knows when to kill. He's patient. Um, people get frustrated with this guy because um, his style is very... He's a, he's a defensive fighter. He's a great counterpuncher. And I'm thinking, you know, Manny's old. You know, these guys are both five years older than they should have been for this fight. And, you know, if you're thinking, how they, how's Manny going to win the fight... Well, how do you beat a counterpuncher? My theory is don't let him counterpunch. Stay on, you know, if Pacquiao stays on him and pressures him, and then after he stops, he gets out of, there, he gets out of his range. Yeah. If Pacquiao jumps on him and initiates the fight, once he stops his flurry, get out of the way. Don't give this guy a chance to counterpunch. I mean, take two, three steps back. So if Floyd wants to retaliate, he has to now go forward. By going forward now, he's no longer counterpunching. He's now on the offensive. So take him out of his game plan. So, I mean, I, I'm sure Freddie's thought of this, but I would jump on him, you know, press him, and then as he's got to make a rally, stay back, you know, stay out of the punching range, let him come forward. Now coming forward, he's no longer a counter puncher. Uh, but shape-wise, I mean, this guy's always been in shape. It's, it's just, oh, you Wait, get, how, how do we, how do we jump, how, how do we jump into that boxing thing? I, I don't oh, remember. I, don't, I, have, I have no idea. Just go back and rewind. I have no idea. It's about entertainment. It goes about entertainment. Ronda, oh, Ronda Rossi Ronda, and entertainment. Yeah, yeah. It's true. No matter, you could be a great MMA fighter, and I've seen some group, some of these guys are as, They uh, don't have a personality. They're as dull as a bag of cement sometimes. And so, you know. That, got, that's why I, I think uh, you were going back to Vince McMahon when he took over after his, his uh, senior. Yeah, yeah. And he, and the guy's a brilliant businessman and showmanship. Expand to the whole country, and and um, uh, I have a lot of respect because uh, ability to make arena full of people excited about it, you know, in every match for thirty years. Yes. Well, I mean, it's amazing. and it really. T- I mean, I would sit. I would sit down. I'd watch. I'd watch Vince's eyes. I'd, I'd see him when he'd really hit it on the angle. I'd watch like the machinations behind his eyes. I'd watch him like something come to life, and I realized this guy's seen it all in the business, and. There were times he'd come up with these great angles. I'd be, wow, this is amazing. He'd, he'd just build the storylines and build it. And I'm following him. All of a sudden, he would turn and goes, and he'll end it with a fart joke. I go, what the, wow, wow, you know. And sometimes he would go overboard with stuff. But, you know, you don't know if you're going to succeed unless you go overboard. Yeah. I mean, you, you, if you keep playing it safe, you're never going to, you don't know where to push it. And I, you know, I got some trouble with some stuff. You know that in my past. And But if you can't push the line in wrestling, why are you there? Okay, why, so. Why are you even there in the business? I want, um. So you're this kid that, you know, son of a professor, you read a lot, you, you like watching movies. Yeah. How, how, did, how did you end up working for Vince McMahon? How did that happen? Oh, that's a crazy. And here's the ironic thing. This is how, I guess the word serendipitous is. We go back to the Clash concert, right? Yeah. I'm standing in the park with my buddy Eric, and we're waiting, you know, and with thousands of other schmucks to come in. It's the Cape Cod Coliseum, and we're waiting, and a limousine pulls up. And who the fuck gets out with Vince McMahon? And At like, the Clash concert? Yeah, but this, is, this is in the afternoon. And he walks to the box office, and I'm, I'm watching him. Everyone, oh, that's that wrestling guy. I go, well, that's Vince McMahon. I mean, this is the guy I watch every Saturday morning, by the yeah. way. You know, he was, at the time, he was a commentator. I didn't really know at the time what he really did behind the scenes. But I saw him as a commentator, and he's talking to the box office. And I didn't know he ran. I guess he ran the Cape Cod Coliseum. The next night, Elvis Costello was playing. And, he's talk, and I'm watching. And I'm, oh, my God, this is this guy I watch all the time on TV. It was, a, it was a real rush for me, and he, he, he gets something from the box office, turns around, goes back to the limousine. Cut to years later, our, the moment he walks in the office and I see him, I flash back to the Cape Cod Coliseum. He, I mean, it was, it was like this weird, like, this is the guy I saw before I met Joe Stroma, 
And now years later, I'm working for the guy. And how I ended up working for Vince was um, my first screenplay, that the one Gregory Dark read, people liked around town, you know, it was the flavor of the month for like five minutes. Um, Vince had, had set up a um, movie studio mm-hmm. in Beverly Hills, WW Films. So they had read my work, they liked my work. I came down, I met the people, I met the guys who ran at the time, and they liked my screenplays, they liked my style, they liked who I was, and we, you know, I was their type of guy, whatever yeah. that means. And they said, you know, we'd like you to someday to you know, write something for us. And I said, yeah, sure, if you want to pay me, I'm down with that, right? Yeah. And then we started talking wrestling, and they go, geez, you know more about wrestling than anyone we know. I said, well, I was going to go to wrestling. As a kid, I, was, I made the conscious I was going to go to Killer Kowalski's wrestling school. I, you know, uh, I, I had a gimmick. I was working. Jesus, old school. Oh, oh, oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's where Triple H comes out of. And China and a lot of guys came out. So I was planning to go there, and, but I was actually... Um, my true love was painting, so I became a starving artist instead of a starving wrestler. And I ended up working for Vince afterwards um, because they read my script and they said, we'd like, you know, we'd like to work with you someday. Then lo and behold, they called my manager at the time and they said, we'd like Dan to come down and pitch an idea for a horror movie. Yeah. So my manager calls me and goes, they want you to come down and pitch an idea for this wrestler Kane. And I said, okay, well, when do I have? Like a month to figure, you know, they give you some time. I go, when should I come down? Like a couple of weeks? And he goes, oh, tomorrow. <laughs> of I said, what? I go, yeah, they want you to come down tomorrow. I'm like, wow. Well, and, and I was, as he called me, I was on my way to pitch uh, another film in Santa Monica. I know what you did last summer in 3D. This other, and I, and I, I was, I'd set that pitch up as a really good pitch. And um, it's one of these things in the business where a year, a year earlier, the woman I'm pitching to is getting me water and coffee. Now I'm pitching her, yeah. you know, um, uh, this film and this idea. And I, I thought, to side I said, I, I thought I had a really, really good idea for the story. At the end of the pitch, she goes, she goes, I thought the killer was somebody else. I said, well, that's the concept. The killer, you think the killer is somebody else. It's called the red herring. And, you know, she didn't get it. So I walked out going, it's another movie I'm not going to fucking get. And that's when my manager called me. They said, we want you to come down and, and pitch an idea to the Vince's people. So I had a story that I had... A, the, the seeds of a story. Everyone, every writer has a story in the back. So I went back there and I went the next day and I pitched this idea to them and I did the song and dance and I'm pitching the story. I'm walking around, running around the room and, and the head guy's looking at me like he's a fucking statue on Easter Island, just stone faced, not doing anything. And I'm thinking, here's another job I'm not going to get. When I finished, I did the old ta da. And the guy doesn't say anything for about three seconds and he goes, Fitz is going to fucking love this. Oh, wow. And I'm like, and I'm like what? And he goes, can you do this, this, and rewrite this? I, yeah, not a problem. So I, I took my treatment. I actually wrote like a 54-page treatment, which is unheard of, by the way. I wrote the, basically, the, the treatment I wrote was going to be the script. Right. If they said yes. If they said yes to the treatment, I was just going to build, extrapolate. So I wrote the treatment. I sent it to him on a Friday. Tuesday, they call it. They want to make the movie. And so Vince knew me uh, through... He, he, reading my treatment. Now, ironically, um, the same producers said, "Hey, would you like to write for the wrestling show, Raw or SmackDown?" To yeah, the those adventure shows. I said, "People write this stuff, you know." No, no. And he goes, "Yeah, yeah." And so I started watching the show. Uh, I'd always watched the show, but now I was watching the show intently. I was I had, not just as a fan. I was watching the show more story creatively. Right. So I stepped back. So I, I would, I would, I try to look at it in a different set of eyes. And this was at a time when they were doing this angle, it's the Katie Vick angle. And any wrestling fans will know it's a very, it was a very bad angle, very dark time in the wrestling business, this, this angle. And after watching it, I realized, um, with the exception of like a Kitty Snuff porn angle, I could do anything for these guys. So I came up writing, a, I wrote an angle about, ironically, masked wrestlers from South America called The Coven who were coming up to South America and they're going to take over 
uh, all of SmackDown and Raw, and they're making them the way for their leader, who's called the Beast. And what they do is they're going to possess people's souls. Wait, so the office is in New York City? No, the office, the off, the head office is in Stanford, Connecticut. And so I wrote this. I wrote this crazy angle, what culminates basically with an exorcism in the ring. Yeah. Stephanie McMahon, Vince's daughter, gets possessed by this group, and she's tied up to the ropes. And Vince McMahon fights his way through it, holy water, screaming, "The power of Vince compels you! The power <laughs> of Vince compels you!" And I have the ring, the ring levitating and stuff. And it was a crazy, it was a crazy, insane angle. It was crazy. And I said, "There's no way they're going to like this angle." And then I get a call to go. Stephanie goes, "We want to meet you." And so they, she was flying out, so I met well, her. So when was this about? This was like 2004, five, 2004. Yeah, it was like a while ago. Yeah. This is before, and then uh, she said, that, and I had met her at the W Hotel, and she goes, this is the craziest thing we've ever read. This is crazy. And she goes, we want you to work for us. Yeah. That. And I said, and then she says, <clears throat> she prefaced, she goes, listen, um, there are no days off. We work every Monday. There's no holidays. It's about 70 hours a week. You gotta move out. You, you travel all the time. You, you move away from your family. It's the hardest job in show business. It's the hardest thing. And I said, I'll do it. God knows what possessed me. I just, I'll, I'll do it. Um, and then, so when I went down to Stanford, Connecticut, where the home office was, I was hired to write the TV show. Right. At the same time, I was hired to write their first movie. And Vince hired me to write the movie. Stephanie hired me to write the TV show. And neither person knew I was the same guy. Until I showed up there, you know, I was like, oh, I'm right. And so I was like the golden boy for like two minutes. But it was ironic. So I go down, I'm writing their first film, Cena Weevil, and I'm writing this show, a TV show. So, you know, I, I got, I really got a baptism of fire um, my first night on the road. When you met Vince, what was that experience like? It was kind of, it was, I got to be honest, he comes in, he, he, Vince is a force of nature. He comes in. He's a big guy, right? He's a, oh, he's, a, he's in fantastic shape. He's a bodybuilder. Vince is a bodybuilder. He comes in, he's in great shape, and he's a great mind. And he looked at me, and um, we shook hands, and I'm thinking, this is a guy I've watched as a kid growing up. And he, he said something, he goes, um, it's ironic because he, um, he goes, we're going to make a lot of money with this movie. I love this character. He, uh, he called him Chester Goodnight. And the guy's name was Lester Goodnight. But I didn't correct him. I, I did not, if he, I didn't right. correct, and I said to my friend, I go, after Vince left, I go, uh, me and Ed were alone, I go, oh, by the way, um, the character's name is Lester, not Chester. And, and I didn't want to correct Vince. And Ed goes, that's the smartest thing you've ever gonna fucking do. <laughs> Go absolutely. I knew better. I've been around. I think he was trying to test me, but uh, it was it was a trip because here's a guy that you know um, built an empire. Yeah. I mean Vince for for, for real. He is know, a he, CEO. I mean. I mean here's the thing. Vince's grandfather, his grandfather Jess, helped start pro wrestling. His grandfather opened the first Madison Square Garden. Uh, Vince's dad, senior, is the second generation. Um, he, a beloved and trusted promoter. Um, massive guy in the business, and basically Vince wasn't handed the business. Vince had to buy the business from his dad. Yeah. And with the with the caveat, you know, you're going to respect the boundaries. You know, you're going to buy the business, and you know, it's set up that every promoter in the country respected Vince Sr. And everyone worked. They all worked together. People worked together. And Vince goes, "Yeah, I, I'll respect the boundaries and whatnot." And basically, Vince said this. And once once Vince took control of the company, he said, "Fuck it." I'm going to be the biggest promoter in the world. I'm going to take over wrestling. And he right. did. He did. He basically, he, if you look, Vince slowly devoured the competition. His library of wrestling films, it's ungodly. I'd, I would go there for hours and just be, I'd be lost. Uh, but, you know, he, he wanted to be the biggest pr promoter in the world. And he said it to me. And, he said, and then he said, but I ended up fucking myself. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he, 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 he explained to me, go, in the day when the country was still divided in territories, if I saw a guy in San Francisco or a guy in Texas 
who I thought had talent, who had potential, by the time he made it to my territory, he was a seasoned veteran. Mm-hmm. He'd wrestled three, four, five years, and he'd gone the territory. Everyone wrestles differently in different places, and by the time he gets the Vince, he's a he's a seasoned guy. He knows what to do. Right today, that they're basically there's this promotions. There's no territory, so Vince sees some guy he likes. They're green. That's mm-hmm. why they have to go to. They, they, we have like OVW. We have different like training facilities. Like we have minor leagues, but it's not like it was anymore. You know, you don't. It's like a rock star. It's like a musician. You play the clubs. You go travel. You do three, four, five, nine shows in a week, but you get your experience. You get your you get your knowledge. You get you you hone your chops. It's like wrestling. And when you, when the territory system's gone, now it's it's a different ball game. Every guy looks the same. They sound the same. Yeah. They look. They came out of Gold's Gym. They're all oiled up and stuff. They're overly muscled and. You know they they look great, but the pers- a lot of the personalities aren't there anymore. They're, they're gone. The, 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 you know even the visual contrast when when Hulk Hogan was. Well, first, so what do, you, what do you think it is? Sorry to drop. What do you think it is? Just lack of talent, or they're just a different generations. It's a different. Gen- I mean, it's hard to say. I, I mean, I would never knock the business. I think it's a great business, and there are guys working. Tell you, John Cena is amazing. I yeah. know John and and Triple Rock. H. Rock. Yeah. Rock. Rock's amazing. I mean, he. There is no. There's never been a wrestler who's transcended. Hollywood, like he has, I mean, no one. It's just I mean, he really, um, he, he's done an amazing job. Uh, Stone Cold's great, and these Kurt Angle, these guys give they literally give body and soul. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I know these guys. Eddie Guerrero gave his life, um, but right now is um, a lot of guys are going to different things and stuff. I mean, a, a lot of guys grew up watching wrestling, and other guys watch MMA. That, you know, and they sort of some guys sort of mature out of wrestling to some extent. Yeah. They go to MAO, sometimes they come back. But I think right now, um, storytelling wise, the, the problem with wrestling is they don't know to the stories. You know, you've got to let sometimes a story has to grow organically. You know, sometimes a, two guys in the ring can be great, great wrestlers, but if they don't have that spark. Sometimes it's not gonna it's not gonna go. It, it seems almost forced sometimes. You yeah. Know? So it's finding it's like it's like an alchemist. You got to find the right personalities. You know, so that's when, when 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 Dusty Rhodes would fight, like you know, Ric Flair. When Billy Graham would fight, so I mean, you know, you find the guy who you, you're you're with, and, and you have a chemistry, and the fans see that chemistry, and they get it, and the fans go crazy about it, and they and they just throw caution in the wind. And once it's like when it's like when when Bruce Brody would fight Abdul the Butcher, I mean, you were always leaving covered in blood. Two different styles, but once these guys clashed together, it was an amazing thing. And so. It's it's like that. It's like it, it's like the Simon and Garfunkel of wrestling. You when two guys come together, they know each guy's going to get better at being with that guy. Sure. You know? And and things have changed. I mean, I I think I I think um I've always said this. Wrestling fans have short memories, short attention spans, but long memories. You know, I mean, um they'll 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 forgive a bad angle, but they'll in the back of their mind they realize oh that happened years and years ago and stuff. And and wrestling fans are uh, they're not stupid. They they they've seen it all. It's like the porn fan. You've seen it all. Yeah. So how how are you going to blow me away? I mean, wrestling fans. I've seen every angle almost imaginable. Action movie fans. I've seen every angle. Horror movie fans. Porn fans. What are you going to do that's going to be new? And sometimes that, that that's the challenge. The challenge isn't in the ring. Sometimes it's in the creative room. It's it's in it's in trying to figure out the angles and stuff. That's the, that's what the challenge is. You have the guys that can pull it off. Sometimes you don't have the storyline. Sometimes. And this is where you come in. Like, how, how long did you end up working for Vince McMahon? My game plan was uh, I want I wanted to work, but I said I wanted to work there one year. I said uh, after a year I had to get. It was, I mean I had left my house, left my wife, I had left uh, 
everything. I, I'd moved away. Yeah, 70 hours a week. I was working five. more than that. I, was, because I have like a sleep disorder, so I was like up for hours. I always up for like a day or two at a time, so I would just stay in the office and write, write, write these crazy angles. And so I worked, I worked uh, a year, but I was averaging 75, 80 hours a week, but, which is fine because that's just the way it was. I mean, I, I, what was I going to do? I go home and sit in my apartment and do nothing? So I would just stay. I would stay. It's funny. I would show up at work in the morning. And I would see the security guy. How you doing? His name was Chris. And then by the time I leave, he'd be there again, and the two other shifts would pass. Yeah. He goes, geez, you're still here? I go, yeah. I mean, I would either write or I'd go to the vault, the library, and take out some old amazing you know, wrestling movies, you know, tapes, and watch them and stuff. But you know, you really try to, when you try hard, you want to give the fans something new. And you know, it's it's like you're a, you're a painter. You've got the the wrestles your, your colors and the rings your palette. You're trying to do something new sure. all the time, and it's hard sometimes. You know, in every angle to some extent's been covered. That's you know, when I did the thing with the Japanese wrestler. I mean, we had I said we had done the ninjas before. We'd done the samurai before, and we've seen it. I mean, you're kind of limited if you're playing culturally. If you're playing with a, a guy's nationality, he's Japanese. You know, and a lot you don't have a lot of big Japanese wrestlers. Not in America. He was you know Kenzo Suzuki. He was like six four. Good sized guy, so I said, "Fuck it, let's make him the grandson of the emperor Hirohito," and that that led to some problems with the Japanese royal family afterwards. But I didn't know there was a Japanese royal family. But yeah, but I mean, like I said once again, you got if you're in any endeavor, it's porn, wrestling, action. If you're not going to push the envelope, then then don't bother being there. Because eventually you got in trouble for something. Oh, I got right? in trouble for a lot. Of I got in trouble with the Japanese royal family. I got in trouble with the Church of England. But but, but let's talk. What, what what's that one about? Oh, it's not interesting. They they have no sense of humor. Well, I had a character. I had a religious character. I came up with called Mordecai, um, <laughs> and he was. And I knew it's funny because uh, the wrestler was his name was Kevin Thorne, really good guy and stuff. And we had this idea um, have this this religious zealot, and he was dressed all in white. He had a long white beard. We dyed his hair white. We dyed his you know his beard white. He would come with a big cross, and he'd, you know, and he was everyone was a sinner and disgusting yeah. and sodomites, and this is stuff Vince wanted, you know, to write. And, and he was the perfect foil for the Undertaker. The Undertaker being dressed in black, clad in black, and the perfect anti-hero. So we we're going to make this religious zealot fight the Undertaker. And um, apparently, the Church of England didn't appreciate this stuff. And all the promos I had I'd written, all the stuff I had directed, sometimes the matches were just cut out over when was it a Sky with Heaven England. The BBC would just, well, the English TVs would cut this stuff out, unbeknownst to us. We didn't know that this, this they didn't like the religious content of this character, so that was getting cut out and stuff. And it's funny because now I found out afterwards that he has a big fan following in Italy, which is a devout Catholic country. Sure. His character had a fan following in Italy for some reason. I guess they liked the fact he was a religious zealot and type of thing, and he'd come carrying a big cross and stuff to the ring. And, you know, this is just, you know, they, they the American... Um, I guess you call it the American Society for um, Handicapped People came after me about this character. <laughs> I mean, this, 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 this mentally challenged character we came up with. And, you know, I mean, we weren't making fun of this, of people that are mentally handicapped. But we had a character that was, um, we'll say he was like Rain Man in a way. Yeah. No, more like Forrest Gump. Originally, they wanted the character to be like Rain Man. I said, geez, that's going to get boring after a while. I mean, it's just going to, you know, the guy, it just doesn't say anything. It's going to get very, very boring. I said, we should make him more like Forrest Gump, where he talks, has something of a personality, and he, but he's kind of challenged. And what he does is he repeats famous wrestling moves. And so we, we, we had the character premiere on a Monday night. And the next thing I know, like the American Society for Mental Retardation, or whatever they call it, and the Canadian government came after us. And, they were in, and I'm going, and I had to save my ass. It's go, a wrestling show. So I said to Vince, I go, Jesus Christ, Vince. I go, when Hollywood does it, 
everyone loves it when they do like you know Forrest Gump or my I Am Sam yeah. or, my, or, or like you know Cuba is Radio you know everyone gives them applause this is great Vince goes take this down in, in the tradition of Forrest Gump and I Am Sam in Radio we bring you Eugene yeah and my friend goes Jesus Christ don't give him quotes just don't give this guy quotes you know but it's funny Hollywood will pull out that card and they'll be lauded for we Jordan wrestling with bad guys. And we, we weren't making fun of Anthem. We were applying this guy's passion for, you know, this kid was, he's not mentally challenged, by the way, but uh, he, his character is, but he finds, he expresses himself to wrestling. You know, so, and the Japanese came down on me and shit. So, listen, I get a lot of people mad at me, but, you know, at least that means they were watching. You know, people don't get mad at you, you're not doing your job. And quite often when people love the show, they watch the show, but people who hate it watch it and because more. they want to hate watch exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It, hate watching gets people more people watching it because, and it's funny, people, uh, I would tell some of the wrestlers, they go, people, they, if they throw things, they would hate you, they despise you, you're doing your job. I mean, Freddie Blassie, the famous wrestler, he had acid thrown at him, he was stabbed and stuff. I go, that means you're doing your job. When people physically attack you, that means you've got inside them. You've, 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 you've got deep inside their emotions and that means they're going to pay to watch you to lose and that's money in the bank when people physically want to attack you you're, you're doing the you're doing the best job you can and Andy Kaufman did a really good job was, just, just pissing people off he, yeah Andy Kaufman realized that Russ he realized what most people don't realize it's entertainment it's performance art it's it's not just buffoonery he really manipulates the people he would get people so crazy they didn't know why they were crazy they would just go crazy, and that was it. And that angle lasted over two years. It was an amazing thing. He had everyone down. He was insulting everyone in the south, which is yeah. great. And, and you, hit, but the thing is, you you, you were so crazy <laughs> about it, and you realize this guy's a genius because that's he understands it's storytelling. It's all about manipulation. He he was like a conductor. He was playing with your emotions, and he was doing the the bait. It was called it's called cheap heat. He was getting cheap heat, and it was a great thing. It was it was, it was tremendous and stuff, you know. And and when he did get beat. People went crazy. They loved it. Jerry Lawler became, you know, an icon. He was always a big wrestler, though. But, you know, he, he vanquished the big asshole. Oh, and that just propelled Lawler's career to another level. I met him, like, 10 or 11 years ago. There's two different conventions. Yeah. One of them was porn, and he was in for another convention. But, you know, here I am just taking a picture of semi-naked girls. But Jerry's the one that I was most excited. I oh. ran up to him and took a picture with him. He he couldn't be a nicer guy, He's a man. nice guy. He's Jerry, a nice guy. Jerry Lawless, not just a nice guy, a, talented, a really talented artist, by the way. A really talented artist. He, did, he illustrates children's books and books. He's very talented. But here's a guy um, knows the – I mean, he, he, uh, a friend of mine, Eric Caden, who I think you know Eric. He runs the Hollywood Book and Poster, mm-hmm. which is an amazing which – is, which is actually a, um, an, an establishment in Hollywood. And um, he has stacks and stacks of wrestling, old wrestling photos. I mean, even I don't know who these guys are. They're so obscure. And Jerry Lawler came in one day and just started naming every guy. And Eric was writing, he was writing the names. And he knew every guy in that stack. And the great thing about wrestling and guys who love wrestling is they know the history. I mean, wrestling has one of those unique, colorful histories. I mean, really does. The guys who have come in the business, how the business has grown, it's, it's really a unique, unique business. And uh, the people that live it and breathe it, uh, they're a wild bunch of people. It's the same the same with uh, genre films. Yeah. It's the same type of things. You watch, it's, it's got amazing histories. These subcultures have histories that really, if you take the time and study them, they go, wow, this stuff's amazing. The fact that it's, it's, a, it's alive and flourished is amazing, too. I, I just like the showmanship, man. That's it's what it is. I, it's, and, and you think about this. When I did, they're so good. When I, I did WrestleMania 20 at the time. That was the biggest WrestleMania event ever. And it's, 
in our business, it is the Super Bowl, the Oscars, the Grammys. I mean, uh, it's all wrapped up in one big crazy thing, and it's on a Sunday night. And usually after a big event, people take time to relax. They take weeks, months off. The next night, they were doing a live show. A lot, the next night, and then the night after that, they did a show, SmackDown. And some guys would go on their own do house shows. Yeah. So there's no time off. I mean, they'll do an amazing four or five-hour show. They'll get body and soul, and the next night, they're doing it again. No time off. That's, a, that's unheard of. It really is. Your body, and the thing is, you don't have time. Your body doesn't heal. Your psyche doesn't heal. And I think that's one of the problems is there's no downtime. You're afraid to, you're afraid to have downtime. Wait, so um, can you, if you can, quickly tell how you lost your job? Uh, well, well, because didn't you tell me that Stephanie ended up not liking you after no, a while? No, well, well, yeah, you know, it's funny. Most people don't like me after a while. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> that, that's not What true. are you talking about? I've known you for a while. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I like you, Dan. The night's not over. Um, what happened was at one point, um, I noticed that my work was being rewritten without me knowing it. And, you know, what happens is I would write two or three or four segments and I would write or direct. I mean, yeah. you couldn't, I would write three or four segments, but I couldn't direct them all. I had, you know, you, you just don't have the time. And I remember one time at a meeting with Vince and we went over something like this. He was, okay, and I went over the, it was a three minute thing I was doing. He was, I want this, this, and this. I said, okay, got it. So, and we had talked about three or four different things and I couldn't do them all. So things get parceled off, other people do them. And so at the end of the night, the thing, one of the things I talked to Vince about was, wasn't done the way he wanted it. He goes, why didn't you do that? I'm like, I, I, I'm, like I'm thinking, I'm, I'm done for. I didn't know because I, I didn't see the thing to her in the office. I go, shit, I don't know. And his daughter had done it. I go, oh, wait a minute. So she had changed, she had changed what me and Vince had agreed upon. I'm thinking, that's interesting. You know, so I wonder why that happened. So I didn't say anything. I mean, I mean right. you, know, you don't, you know, you just teach it's smarter to take the tongue lashing than say someone else did it. It's just it's not a smart move. So, and what happened was um, another time that was happening again. And Vince was reading um, something that he thought I wrote, and he goes, "That's not what I. That's not what we talked about." Yeah. I go, "Do you mean this?" And I kept the original copy and I pulled it out. I mean, do you mean this? And I put it in front of Vince on the clipboard, and he looked at. It, he goes, "That's what we talked about." And the thing he was reading was something his daughter had changed, and so she. Why, why was she doing that? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe it should be different creative ideas and stuff. She saw something differently than oh, I Oh, was did. she trying to get you fired? No, I mean, she could have fired me anytime she wanted. She, she, she hired oh. me. So it was just people see these things different creatively. And um, I have no animosity, but what happened was um, at the time, we were going to England to do a show. Yeah. And we were planning to go do the show. It was a big event, a big pay-per-view over there. And I get a call on a Monday. My wife calls me. She says that my dog, my Rottweiler, who's like my daughter, is sick. I'm going, oh, Christ. You know, she says, a dog has cancer. I'm thinking, oh, Christ. So I'm like, I'm, I'm a dog lover. I'm like, yeah. it's all, this is fucking great, right? And I figured, okay, let me try to get home as soon as I can after the pay-per-view. Then my wife calls me Wednesday. And my wife says, there's something wrong with her blood. She goes, I, had to, I took a blood test, something wrong with my blood. I'm thinking, oh, Christ, what, what can happen next? Locust. And then Friday she calls me again. She says, um, and I'm leaving Friday night, by the way, to fly to England. And she calls me Friday night. She goes, uh, I just had a miscarriage. Oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, shit, honey. Let me try to get over there. But that wasn't just the worst thing. On the way home, her mother calls her and says, you have to come home. Your father's dying. So she didn't want to tell her mother she had a miscarriage. I said the mother was that her father's dying. So, you know, she loves her parents, and she didn't want to burden them. So my wife has to fly from L.A. to Boston. Yeah. Our dog's dying. We had a miscarriage. Her father's dying. So I tell Stephanie, I go, listen. 
Uh, when he, we get back from England, I have to go to Boston. I have to take time off. I, and I explained everything. She goes, oh, I understand everything. You know, I mean, everyone understood. I go, I mean, this is the dire situation. Oh, no. And so we did the pay-per-view on a Sunday. And then trying to get back, we're trying to get back. And the engine of the plane, like, dies. So I'm stuck there for a day and a half in England. And I was in bat- by the time I get to Boston, it was like a day and a half later. And I get there. And like a day later, two days, my, my father-in-law passes away. I get there in time to talk to him. Right. He passes away. And then basically we did a quick funeral. And I told I said, my, my, my father-in-law passed away. My wife had a miscarriage. I'm, I'm consoling my mother-in-law. Everyone's, you know, everyone's upset. And as I'm at the rinks, you know, rinkside, let's see, as I'm at the graveside, uh, I, I see my phone ringing, and it's Stephanie McMahon. I'm just, it's on, you know, mute. And then I find out that her secretaries call me, and they're going, how come you're not at the meeting today? And, and then and Stephanie called me. She goes, you, you missed the tough enough meeting. And why? And I, and I said, I'm at the grave side. Because my wife, whose father just died, and we just had a miscarriage. And totally oblivious. Totally didn't understand what I was trying to say. I'm like, fuck this. I'm done. And that was it. I mean, w- there were things leading to this. But I'm, yeah. like, you know, I'm like, this was the, this was the straw. I go, f- and this bullshit, like we're a family company, bullshit. I mean, I needed time to take care of my family. Absolutely. And they're bitching about, I missed a meeting for a fucking lousy Tough Enough show. I'm like, that was it. So I drew down, I drove down the next day. And basically, I got that email, you know, at the end of the afternoon. Oh, Stephanie wants to talk to you. Yeah. Which is like, you know, they're going to fire. I'm like, oh, thank God. I'm like, thank God. That's when I called my agent in LA. I said, get me a job. I'm leaving this thing. And they go, no, they're not going to fire you, Dan. You know, my, you know, you write half the shows. I go, trust me, I've been this before. So, and they let me go. And I was like, it was fine we parted ways you know but uh it, it had come to a head it just had come to a bad head and that left a very bad taste in my mouth you know it just, i thought there was another incident when you were pitching for some uh, oh, oh, oh the nazi thing yeah oh that's another and i wasn't fired for the nazi thing believe it or not <laughs> i was um it, sorry no no they, they don't know exactly what they're talking about no. it's just funny to say it, the nazi the thing. nazi thing <laughs> what happened was funny that you didn't get fired for that one well you know you, if, you, if you can't make fun of the nazis so you can make fun of um even even then you, you gotta watch around but uh no, we had the the Japanese thing we talked about was the Hirohito, the yeah. Emperor's grandson, and you know we took that's when the Japanese royal family wanted to fucking execute us, and I said Vince, I didn't know there was a Japanese royal family. He goes, neither did I, but I guess they watch wrestling, and we had a deal with some of the J- Japanese promotions, so they were pissed off at us. Yeah, it's called WW two. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> we won that one too, by the way. That was that was a real still case. That was an atomic match. Um, <laughs> And uh, there were two out of three falls. We got them both. Yeah. We, we, we won in Hiroshima. We won in Nagasaki. Um, but then I remember I was pitching this idea to Vince. I said, you know, um, I said, Vince, I had a great idea. And I said, let's pretend. And this is how I start the pitch. It's the end of World War II. And I could feel the room get colder, by the way, as soon as I said that. And the Third Reich has fallen. And the Germans are scattering everywhere. But yet there's one holdout in the Alps, one German enclave, this one German unit of doctors, and they're trying to create the super Nazi, you know, Upa Nazi, Baron von Bava, and they create this ultimate Nazi, and they freeze him in the caves of the Alps, and he's defrosted years later, and he comes to SmackDown, and I said, let's have Paul Heyman, who's a, a wrestling impresario, who's Jewish, be his manager, and he'll come down, and he's going to, the Fourth Reich lives, and we'll call him Baron von Bava, he'll take over, you know, and we'll really, he'll walk with a SWAT stick on yeah. this, and, and for some reason, in my mind, I thought, hey, if I emphasize this by walking around the room singing, 
Dushlin Uberalis and goose stepping, I'll sell the, it'll be a better point. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, I said, hey, this is a good idea. So I got up, I started walking around the room, and I was doing, you know, Sig Heil doing Deutschland, Deutschland, and I'm thinking, oh, they'll understand what I'm saying. Yeah. And I'm goose stepping, by the way. And I remember I goose stepped once around the room, and then I turned around, hiling in this, thinking, this is really selling the point. And it was like that scene in The Producers, the original Mel Brooks movie, where they just finished Springtime of Hitler, and you pan to the audience, and everyone's a complete shock. I mean, literally, Vince's mouth was open, and his eyes were like, and everyone was just total shock. And I'm like smiling, like, hey, what do you think of that idea? And I'll never forget, Vince got up from the table, he took his jacket, and he took his briefcase, he walked to the door, he turned around, he looked at me again, it was a look of like, like befuddled, yeah. And he he never said it where he's walked out the door. And my buddy goes, "That's a first in company history." <laughs> <laughs> and then literally like ten minutes later, um, we we found out we had a mole, a rat in, in the creative room, and that made the internet. Someone talked about that, and that never left. I mean, it wasn't supposed to leave the room, and we had someone who on the team unfortunately was selling, um, giving to the dirt sheets, and that and all of a sudden like the next day it's like frozen Nazi idea. Nazical, you know, and I, I said, "Listen, fuck it." I thought it was a good idea. I listen. It's pro wrestling. It would have been entertaining. It's a good idea. It's a, this this guy is he's a throwback. He still thinks it's nineteen forty five, you know. And, and ironically, like a week later, we go we're doing a show down south somewhere, and one of the wrestlers who's from OVW, which is our minor league, comes up. His name is John Heidenreich. It's really it's Heidenreich's his name. About six 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 seven, big jacked up. He looks like Rutger Howard, juiced out of his mind. Big. Lantern jaw, <laughs> short blonde hair, and I see this guy, and I and I fall in love. I literally yeah. fall in love. I go, oh my god, this is my frozen Nazi. Yeah, this is my frozen. This is my god. This is amazing. And this is like a dream come true. And I walk up to him. I go, please tell me you speak German. And he looks down at me and he smiles with a big southern lisp. Not a lick, brother. Not a lick at all. You know, yeah. oh, shit. But it was, you know, it was a fun run I had. I mean, I learned on my first night on the road. I learned how to direct live TV. I mean, I thought... Oh, I, was, I didn't know you did that. Oh, yeah. I thought I was going to sit back in, in my ass and watch. And my first night on the road, they threw me a script. They were here, direct the segment. I'm like, what? What? And they go, yeah, direct. And I'm like, so I grabbed my cameraman. I grabbed the stage manager. I grabbed the lighting guy. I said, hey, we need to talk. <laughs> so I don't know. And so, and what I, my theory of working in film and storytelling is it's a collaborative effort. I've, I don't know which way to look to a camera, to be honest. You know, I couldn't light, a, I couldn't light, if I opened the fucking fridge, I couldn't find the light, you know? But we all sat together, and I said, here's the idea, let's work together. And I ended up having all the crews want to work with me because I took, you know, you work here. You know what, how to work a camera. What do you want to see? So when I was breaking out with the crew, when I was directing segments, it became a collaborative effort. And the guys liked working with me because I liked working with them, and we picked each other's brains. But I said, when you do live TV, when they say to you 10 seconds live to you, man, you're you're under the fucking gun. Yeah. You're under the gun, man. I'm telling you so. I mean, so now it's like when I do stuff now. I can't like, even imagine the pressure. Oh, you're like ten seconds to you. I'm like, okay, and you're thinking, and you're just hoping that after your segment's done, you don't hear that Vince wants to see you. Vince wants to see you, and that another time that happened. Vince came up and he asked me another time a segment I did not direct. He didn't like something. He wasn't mad. He just said, "Listen, I didn't like the way this came off." And I said, "Okay, okay, understood. Got it." I didn't tell him I didn't. I didn't direct it. Yeah. And I walked away, and Stephanie pulled me aside. She goes, you didn't direct that segment. I go, no, I didn't. She goes, smart move. So I didn't, you don't rat the guy out, but now you find out what Vince likes he doesn't like. But you're not yeah. going to sit there. Well, I didn't direct You just sit there and take it. And he, but he wasn't mad because he's just pointing out what, what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, this guy's been doing it for so long, you listen to him. It's refreshing to hear someone who 
almost have a monopoly and work hard and basically dominating the whole business, right? No. And he still cares about oh, the that, quality. Let me, let, me tell yeah. you, let me tell you. You could take all his money away, and he's a lot of money. Vince loves his business. I've ne- you know, I can never badmouth the guy. I mean, yeah. I, oh, I'll t- you know, jab and make fun, tease him. But Vince McMahon loves this business more than anything. And he, it's to him, it's not a joke because this guy built up an empire and there's nothing he won't do for the fans. He, he'll never ask you to do something he won't do. He'll never do that. He literally peed his pants. He, he, if you look at the stuff he did, he had his hair shaved. Yeah. Vince literally knows he's, he's the ultimate entertainer. He realizes that the Mr. McMahon character is the perfect foil. And he, he's gone in it, you know, completely, he's given into it. And, I mean, we would have meetings after the show is done, and he would sit there and go, geez, why were the people in that section not cheering? And he would, they were, he would be confounded. And the show's always going, well, why wasn't, you know, and he really loves the fans. I mean, I'm not bullshit. He really loves the fans. We would show up at a hotel, 2, 3 in the morning. Fans are waiting there to get their picture taken, Mr. McMahon. Sure, he grabs him, takes a picture of him. I mean, and he says, without the fans, there's no business. And here's the guy that realizes, you know, we're built upon um, a product, but the product's built upon people loving us or hating us. But, you know, you've got to respect him, and he respects the fans. I mean, um, he sits down every Monday, and he says, this is the greatest business in the world. We're lucky to be in it. And he was, to some extent, he's right. He's right. He's absolutely right. I mean, he's doing something he loves, and he loves it well. So I respect the guy. No matter what people I say, I said, I can't badmouth the guy because the guy gave me a job. He uh, made my first film. Um, I learned a lot from him. And I, someone I admire. He's just a guy, you know, you don't realize, I mean, I, and here's a guy, I would see him in one level as my boss, but when he left the creative room, he had tons of decisions. I mean, he's the CEO of a massive corporation, you know, so heavy as the brow that wears the crown. I had no idea. I, I saw Vince, you know, I traveled him, but I had no idea the other stuff he did business-wise. And that's a lot of pressure for a guy. Um, Dan, I, I got back Monday Time difference. I, I'm really fading now. Um, yeah, your eyes are half closing, but I yes. can't tell anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you mind if I come back maybe in a month or so and Absolute, do a part two? Absolutely, but, um, yeah. I'll, I'll release if this. You, if you find this of interest, I don't know if you find this interesting. Oh, no, no. I, 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 I still want to... If your legion of fans out there in Yoshi Land finds this interesting, then yes, <laughs> I'll continue my ranting and raving. I, I, I want to talk about the movie stuff. I want to yeah. talk more about wrestling, but yeah. also your your friendship with Toby Hooper and things yeah. like that. So I'm going to do that. But yeah. um, there will be, this will be part one. But let's. how did they contact you? Your Twitter account? What, what's easiest? Well, to, um... And I want you to talk about the show you're doing. Oh yeah, next well, month. Uh, seeing that I'm no longer in um, witness protection program, I can talk freely now. I'm doing a show now. I had a show a couple of months ago with some great guys, Paul McGee and Joey Gaynor. Um, Paul's an actor. Joey's a well-known comic. We do a show called Wrestling with the Pop Culturians, and we were on the John Lovitz Network for a couple of months, and then the John Lovitz Club closed, and we were Rick D's. It's for closed. Yeah, the, the up at Universal that they closed. The club's closed and stuff. So we were we were doing. I our didn't show. know that. Yeah, that happened like about, uh, say, a month and a half ago. So we, our show was in hiatus. Yeah. And so now we're going to start our show again in two weeks down at Skid Row, uh, the studio, not the actual Skid yeah. Row, but down in Pershing Square, down, you know, down in uh, L.A. And we're gonna, it's going to be the revival of uh, Wrestling with the Pop Culturians. And our yeah. show, you know, the show basically, it started as a wrestling show, but we've sort of grown into all pop culture. We talk wrestling, we talk film, genre films, pulp novels. We've, we've had yeah. opera singers on, artists on, documentarians. So basically, we're six degrees of hip. You know, we're like the Hugh Hauser of like pop culture. 
And so uh, between Joe and Paul and myself, we have a, we're building an archive of work, and uh, it's a fun show. It'll be on hopefully on Thursday afternoons, 5 o'clock, and it'll be up on iTunes. Skid Row is a really good organization. We, we're happy to be there. So in the two weeks, we'll be back doing our show, Wrestling with the Pop Culturians. Um, with Skid Row, so that, I would I would look forward to that, and that'll be on iTunes. And uh, when you come back, I'll have a couple of show, new shows under our belt and stuff. And he told me a bunch of other projects, but I don't, I, we can't talk I about can't, it. Yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't, yeah. But that's one of those things. Believe me, yeah. you want to listen to what Dan have to say later on. And um, yeah, um, and and you know, I really appreciate your give assistant to my friend Josh Gross, and oh yeah, he I, was blown away. Like you really know your shit, man. I mean, you you. you I mean, you literally give the wrestling version X and O like a John Mann. You know, you know your stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, it's just something like I said. If you go into something you like, uh, that's what I teach my son. I mean, life without passion—that's just existing. Yeah, you want to live. So, you know, I have other things I like. You know, I, I, in fact, I got to contact Josh about um, quickly before I go. Um, I am putting on a show myself. It's an art show, wrestling event, concert, April eleventh. Uh, at Plaza de la Raza, it's called La Buya, and me and my partner Antonio Palayo is an amazing uh, artist. And, uh, you've seen his work, the work I just showed yeah, you. Yeah, fantastic. And Antonio's work is just amazing work. So we're putting on a show called La Buya, and it's uh, it, it's 150 artists from around the world, around the country. Uh, it's a lucha libre themed thing. We have a concert. We have four bands. We have. Um, uh, wrestlers from Mexico coming up, so it's going to be a yearly event. But so uh, does it have a website? It has a website. It's it's uh, labuya dot org. It's l a b u l l a dot org. Okay, labuya, and that's and we just put the website up. But um, you can find us on Facebook, and it's it's going to be a fun night because we have we already have a thousand RFCPs. Yeah, and we have Tito's Vodka sponsoring us. We have Himido Tequila sponsoring Urito Soda, and the American Diabetes Association, which I think sort of somehow cancels out the previous things. I don't know. I mean, I told them I will actually contract you, diabetes. Even if you miss the party, the artwork will be there for several more oh, the, months, the right? Art, yeah, the, art, yeah the, the, the show is from 7 to 1, April 11th, but the artwork will be up for a couple of weeks, and the artwork is amazing. And so if you get a chance to come to Plaza de la Raza, um, April, April 11th, it's going to be a great show. We have, we have bands, DJs, wrestlers, dancers. It's going to be a great night. And uh, it's on 3540 North Mission Road, Los yeah. Angeles, uh, 90031. Uh, Plaza de la Raza, Plaza, yeah, and uh, um, La Buya. For tickets, for, what is oh, yeah, that? For, for tickets, for tickets for the show, it's www.flavorus, F-L-A-V-O-R-U-S dot com. That's F-L-A-V-O-R-U-S dot com, um, and it's slash La Buya, and you'll see uh, the tickets. So we, the tickets are going like crazy. They're only $15 for the show, and the, the main group headlining is called La Resistance. And they played a month ago. They brought 4,000 people in. So we'll have eight bars. Yeah. We have uh, tattoo people, face painting. So it's, it's good. Vendors. It'll be a fun night, and we hope to see you down there. It's the perfect fusion of wrestling, art, and music. So next time I'm going to talk to you uh, about um, uh, New Beverly, and maybe yeah. we could have Steve with you. Oh, absolutely. He, he yeah. loved New Beverly. The New Beverly cinema. Uh, more is- wrestling stuff. But I, I really want to know more about your... Uh, Friend about Toby Hooper because man that guy yeah I mean I'm, you know, I mean I'm, I'm I I love Toby he's like my dad we're very I'm, I'm kind of protective like most but uh yeah I'll talk about Toby what I can he's I mean uh, it's funny because the the film he made became um, which is very influential to me and now I'm I, he's just like. My uncle, you know, yeah. my dad, he's just hope, you know, he's just but, hope. So. You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, that's it. Oh, mean, well, yeah. Texas Chainsaw literally changed the playing field. He literally changed. Um, there had been, and that's a, if you look, it's a regional movie. 
but and there've been other films made similar, but nothing what Toby did. I mean, the movie just drips with dread, and and you really realize as a master that he is there that there's very little bloodshed there. Yeah, and the movie is created by atmosphere and dread and uh, the sound, the way he designs things, the way the shots are set up. I mean, it really is. It's in the Museum of, uh, of uh, Modern Art, and uh, several months ago I was with um. He was showing it again with William Friedkin. Friedkin was doing a, a Q and A with him, and the I was the fly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and I and I was I was um, I was talking to um, to Friedkin. You know, this is the guy who done The Exorcist, The French Connection. I think you're probably thinking of Cronenberg, who did The Fly. Oh, and I'm sorry, David oh, Cronenberg, yeah. uh, the Canadian, uh, another great director. And then one point, they're watching the movie. I'm sitting next to him. Toby turns, uh, Friedkin turns to Toby. Goes, Jesus, Toby. How'd you get her to scream like that? He goes, I've been in this business 40 years. I go, how'd you, she, she's being chased by this crazy guy. I go, yeah. how'd you get her to scream like that? And Toby goes, well, well Billy, the chainsaw is real. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess on that quote, Yoshi, uh, the best thing I say about this business is make sure the chainsaw is real. You know? <laughs> I, I'm going to call that uh, this episode's name, Chainsaw is Real. Yeah, the, yeah. the chainsaw is real. Um, Dan, thanks for doing it. And then when, when I get back to normal uh, sleep, sleep pattern, I'll I, be I, never. I, I, I definitely want to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk to you more about it. But yeah, I definitely want to get Steve on. And, yeah, Steve. Uh, yeah, then, we'll, and, we'll, we'll do it together. Yeah. And I think before I leave, I mean, if there's anyone out there who's a, who's a movie fan uh, who really wants to see what film should be seen, the new Beverly Cinema on Beverly Boulevard is the place to go. Brian Quinn's running it now. Michael Torkin's there. It's a great bunch of people. But the films are amazing, and and this show. And everyone's from Tarantino's actually there too, right? Yeah, oh yeah, but you know, but the thing about that is, you know, um, and I, I don't blame that. He doesn't want to be. You know, he's very friendly, but you know, you don't want to take pictures. You know, he wants to be there, like to watch the films. Yeah, and he's out now filming his movie. But you know, he's really in the last three months, he's programmed the movies, and they've been amazing. I mean, for a guy like me, a guy like Steve, guys who like films, I mean, we're basically right. And next week, there's two weeks. There's two John Woo movies. You know, he'll do Hong Kong stuff, spaghetti westerns, obscure grime. I mean, and really, because he's in charge now, he's getting the obscure films that were hard to get before. And then with Brian Quinn running it, you know, uh, running the show, I mean, it's just an, it's an amazing event. So yeah. if you love movies, you love cinema, you want to sit down, have a great snack bar, you want to see how these things were supposed to be seen on the big screen, check the new Beverly Cinema out. You're not, you won't be disappointed. Won't be. I definitely want to talk to you. And one last thing. Yeah. Did you used to go Mondo Video? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know the guys at Mondo. Mondo, yeah, that's it. Mondo, which is no, which is now defunct. Because I did one episode with Steve, and, and afterward to respond, what people want to hear more about it. Yeah, because- Mon- Mon- if, you, if you want to hear about the Mondo, I mean, I, I, even I wouldn't go to Mondo, and, I, and I've been around murder <laughs> scenes, all right. Literally, but um, Steve- I only lasted one time. Yes, and- M- Mondo. You, I would need a shower just hearing about Mondo. <laughs> I mean, this is there's depravity, and then there's Mondo. But Steve, uh, when you hit, when you bring Steve on, Steve is the great tour and I had been to Mondo a couple of times, but I w- I wanted to live vicariously through Steve because I didn't want to touch these people physically, yeah. I didn't want to be in their re- you know presence. But uh, Mondo Video, when I was there, was just this infamous type of. It was basically a Spawn Ranch with videos. That's basically <laughs> what it was. I'll say that. I'll leave it at that. But yeah. you got to have Steve to come on. Steve could talk for hours and. Steve Coutini is a great rancator, so um, I can't wait for the next episode where he gets on with us. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to the episode, and we'll be back in about a month to do the part two, and uh, Steve will be here. But, Dan, thanks for doing it. My and, pleasure. And, uh, good. Uh, um, I, I, I'm sorry I'm going to miss that show, but uh, I will definitely uh, show up when I can and check Absolutely. out the artwork. You're always welcome. All right. Thanks, guys, and talk to you guys soon. Good Goodbye. Bye.